This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. So good to be back. Dr. Matt here, along with Jeffrey, Liam Simpson. Are you being and truthful? And of course, Terry South. Uh, it is. It is good to get back. But we had a week and a half break. Oh, it's so tough. I know to come back. Uh, sleeping in every day. Yesterday, yeah. Flashbacks of being unemployed. <gasps> really? What? My whole family. My wife went to work. My kids went back to school. I'm sitting there like, Ooh. what am I going to do with my? Did day? you wake up with cold, like a like cold sweat? Just. Hot no, just, just about an hour Vietnam. into it, I'm like, this isn't as fun as it used to be. Yeah. Mm. I need to go back to work. I've been away for a while. Oh, how interesting is I, that? I yeah. Need, I need to radio today. You didn't watch uh, Netflix and put on your stuffing pants? No. I mean, I watched, but Did stuffing? You ever, after you remember those stuffing? Were they stuffing pants? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was from... Uh, Stouffer's? Yeah, Stovetop. 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 I have new food-related clothing. That's coming up. Fantastic. Well, I because I was wondering what I would wear without having more food-related clothing. Is this edible clothing? No. no Can I, that's different. Oh. That's a different show. That's a different show. Uh, man alive. So much to talk about today. Sadness uh, in the LDS Church. President Thomas S. Monson, 16th uh, president of the LDS Church, died last night about 10 o'clock. Um, by the way, spent more than, I think, like 54 years as, a, as an apostle, one of the 12 apostles of the LDS faith, and... Uh, He's really been at this since he was 23. Yeah. At age 23, uh, he was um, called to be a bishop of a little of his faith group, his ward, they call it in the LDS church. And uh, since then, he's been going at it nonstop. I mean, it's sad. 90 years old, an incredible, incredible man. You know, I read something that I did not know before about him, and I didn't know that, that you could do this. But what? while he was serving as an apostle, a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, he got his master's degree in business administration. Well, it's isn't that that's weird? But he was so young, yeah, right. So he was called. I think he was the youngest apostle 30, called 36. in this century. Yeah, thirty six yeah. years old, and so he at thirty six, you still might need a master's degree. You know what? I I read the timeline of all of his accomplishments over his life just briefly this morning, and uh, it was kind of a reality check for me. It's like, oh, I I don't know that I've accomplished all that. <laughs> like, what, what have if, you done what with have your I life? Done? He, there's so many stories in his life about him individually going out and ministering to people all the way through even his 80s. Uh, I remember a story told to me about my wife's grandfather. Um, in the middle of a meeting, President Thomas Monson was in a meeting with all of the leaders of the church and had this prompting come over him that he needed to go visit my wife's grandfather, who was not well. He was dying of a brain-related issue. And um, in the middle of the meeting, President Monson asked to be excused and leaves and goes straight to my grand my grandfather-in-law's house uh, and arrives right after he had passed away. Wow. And was one of the first people there to to basically care for the widow. Mm. And he there's like there's literally hundreds of stories of him following prompting after prompting. And so one of the big points of his ministry was always you minister one by one, which was, you know, a, become a great message of the church is always look after the one and 
So uh, the LDS Church uh, has lost its its president, its leader. It, there's a very organized way that the, they then choose their next leader, and next in line would be um, President or uh, President Russell Nelson, who mm-hmm. is currently the leader of the twelve apostles, and so historically he would eventually then be. Um, I don't know what the word would be, not nominated, but basically take the seat of and the prophet. It, as you mentioned during the break, he's actually even older than President Monson was. 93 years old. Wow. And a lot of people are like, oh, the, the church, they've just got all these old people. They don't. But I, I just sat in a meeting with hundreds of thousand people or so with President Russell Nelson. He's spry. He's, he's sharp. young, sharp as a whip. So I don't know if whips are sharp, but... He's that sharp. Can we? Can I share a lighter story yeah. briefly about President Monson? Well, yeah. it's not really about President Monson. I went to a family camp uh, up here near Sundance. Family and, camp? Yes. And his family, it's owned by BYU, actually, Aspen Grove. Yeah. His family happened to be there the same week as ours. And so he was going to be speaking at a devotional. Well, I noticed on the ping pong sign-up sheet, because I wanted to be in the tournament, that there was a Thomas Monson. So I thought, oh, <laughs> maybe I'm going to be playing the prophet of the LDS Church. Turns out it was uh, his son. His or son, Tommy. Son, yeah, and uh, he uh, he beat me well, in of ping course. pong. I lost to the prophet's son in ping pong. Did uh did he like rub it in your face, neener neener? What did he? Did he he, take he it, like, like took my face and like rubbed it into <laughs> you know the into the grass. Take and, that, yeah. you little punk! That's <sighs> neat that you went to family camp. Terry, did you ever go to family camp? No. Okay, it's delightful. It you, sounds wonderful. It's a it's a truckload of money, but uh, you pay to wa- have other people watch your kids while you can go off and do all the fun yeah, things you want to do. They have a pool. It's up by Sundance and there's ping ski pong resort. Apparently. Ping pong. Well, yeah. And there's a major ping pong tournament up there with a lot of celebrities. Right. Uh, well, 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 again. Regional celebrities. The church, the LDS church, mourns the passing of its president, President Thomas S. Monson. A lot of news out of Utah. Um, Pre- or Orrin Hatch, also friend, by the way, of President Monson. Orrin Hatch says he's not going to run. He's not doing it. Really? For what? Really? His eighth term? That, I mean, there is a point. Eight. Would it, would it have been his eighth senatorial? Sure. At I some mean, point, he'll just turn into a pile of dust. So please leave before that. But so that now, everyone's jumping on the bit saying, hey, that means all of a sudden now Mitt Romney may be in the race. And Mitt Romney, one of the the loudest uh, you know, people to speak out against President Trump. So, so do you think Trump will be supporting him? I doubt it. Really? No. Don't they need more Republican senators? It's coming from Utah. It's going to be, I mean, unless short of an Alabama fiasco, it's going to be a Republican. But now uh, Bannon, Steve Bannon is like, hmm, we got to find us a nationalist candidate out of Utah. He's tried. The people he's contacted have turned him down. But people need to realize Mitt Romney is is immensely iconic in Utah. Mm-hmm. Good hair. Great Olympics. hair. And he came and saved the Olympics is kind of the story. Um, he pushed me out of the way. He pushed you out. Of, well, yeah. What? Like Trump pushed uh, some leader from like Sweden or Finland or something out some of the way. Some small country. Yeah. Just kind of. Well, he. But that was kind of. That was important, though, because the president of the United States needs to be in front in the picture. Oh, that's true. It's a good point. Now. Mitt pushed me out of the way at the Olympics because he was late to start the opening ceremonies for the the first medal ceremony. You were trying to block it. It's not an easy thing to do, by the way. 
to, to push Terry South out of the way. No, no, no. He's because he's solid as a rock. No, NFL Hall of Famer Steve Young. He also did it the next night when he was the master. Okay, of so but what does this tell you? I was kind of in the way. You're always in the way. I was there. trying to get back to the supply shed and get some batteries. Do or people something, see so. you and see a challenge? Like, I don't I wonder if I can I push know. this guy. I remember over. the first time just, I met you, I thought I've got to push that guy. <laughs> I'm just walking. Can you guys quit trying to hit me? Oh, I want to push him. Good hair though, up close, really good hair. Really good hair. Well, and so uh, this could be a really big deal because what if a, in a very red state, by a landslide, elects their guy, and their guy happens to be anti-Trump? Huh. Now you have an anti-Trump senator who maybe could be the very first senator that's not dying or on their way out <laughs> right. that has enough voice and power to push back on this president. Yeah. This is a big deal. But it'll confuse people who will think he's somehow – Romney somehow joining the resistance. He's still a conservative. Oh, yeah. Right? He's not well, going to vote. But for- many conservatives say he's not a conservative. He's a rhino. He's kind well, of a middle – he's he's a liberal conservative, we'll a progressive. See. Well, and if you saw Star Wars The Last Jedi, you will see the numbers of Spoilers. the resistance dwindling yeah. rapidly. It gets down to just a handful. Hey. But it makes it easy for casting. And I like how you brought no that into a political story. <laughs> well, really, the story of Star Wars is, is very, politics. It's very political. I mean, it all started with a trade war. It's a trade dispute. Wow. A lot of racist characters representing all the sides. So Thank it's you, much George like Lucas. Washington. You're talking yeah. about Akbar. Not like way like the the horrible movies that no one wants to acknowledge exist. It started oh, with a trade disagreement. The Star Wars holiday special could be okay. It's in there. Okay, let's see what else we can turn into a Star Wars segue. Uh, let's get to the headlines with Terry. Terry, what else is going on? We should be paying attention to President Donald Trump on Tuesday night responded to North Korea leader Kim Jong Un's latest provocation, writing on Twitter that he too has a nuclear button. He goes, "Will someone please, uh, will someone from his depleted and food-starved regime please inform him that I too have a nuclear button, but it is much bigger and more powerful one than his." Oh man! And my button works. Trump wrote on Twitter, "The president. My button's bigger than your button." The pre- president's comment comes just after Kim talked about having a button of his own. Now, if you think about it, if we want to keep a tally of buttons on the president's desk, he there is a report he has a button he pushes to get his Coke. Mm. Really? That's next to apparently this button that he has for missiles. Can I get one of those? I don't know. A cherry one, though? No. It was one of the first New York Times uh, articles about kind of the inside workings. Interesting. And they said he has a button on his desk in the Oval Office. He just taps it and they bring him a coat. No, I heard that none of those buttons actually work. They just yeah. light up a button right. on someone else's desk. Yeah. And then they know they've got to go talk to the president. I read a thing yesterday that uh, one solution to all the angst around the presidency is make it into sort of like the Truman Show. Oh. Where he kind of has all these things that make it look like he does something and nothing actually oh, happens. Oh, interesting. The Trump, so, the Trump and show. As someone who is constantly pressing buttons, I've got to say having buttons at work really boosts morale. There you go. Does More it? buttons. I love pushing buttons because things happen. Yeah, that's when you get pushed back. Speaking of North Korean leader Kim Jong-un has reportedly ordered that a long-closed border hotline with South Korea be reopened. Officials in Seoul confirmed the news, which was announced Wednesday by a North Korean ah. official. Uh, the whole point is South Korea is negotiating with North Korea to get them to send a team to the Winter Olympics. 
Right. They feel like if, if North Korea sends a team, the North Korea won't launch any missiles during the Olympics because they'll have a team in the Olympics. Oh, it's like mm. security. Yeah, basically. But no, it's not interesting. Not compete. But. Did you know that every day, I guess, for years, the South Koreans have been calling twice a day the North Koreans, yeah. and they never answer the phone? Wow. And then today was the first time the North Koreans called the South Koreans wow. to have a talk, and then they had a 20-minute talk. But, like, well. what's that like to answer that phone? Hello? <laughs> Yes, it's the North Koreans. Hi. How are you? As we were talking about Mitt Romney on Tuesday, uh, is there a, the talk after Orrin Hatch decide, or announces that he's going he's not to not run it. again. Mitt Romney changed his Twitter location from Massachusetts to Holiday, Utah, just hours after Senator Hatch made his announcement. Really? Does that matter? The, is the, this just CNN jumping the, on something? The move fuels speculation that Romney will announce a bid later this year to replace Hatch. Uh, a source close to Romney told the Daily Beast on Tuesday that he will likely delay a formal announcement out of deference to Hatch. Yeah. Mm. It's time to celebrate Hatch. Really? Celebrate him. Can 42 just, just years. Sweep him out the door? Just no. Pile of dust? No, he's right. not a pile of dust. You, Whoa. You celebrate him. He's the most senior leader in the Senate now, right? He wants to tell you that all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, uh, he's already dis- disintegrated, though. He's a good man. Well, shouldn't we, I mean, at some point, should we just give all uh, uh, acknowledgement to his aides who have informed him on many issues live on camera on C-SPAN? Um, sorry. <laughs> Unforgiving cold has punished the eastern third uh, of the United States yeah. for the past 10 days, but the most severe winter weather yet will assault the area late this week, according to the Washington Post. First, a monster storm will hammer coastal locations from Georgia to Maine with ice and snow. By Thursday, the exploding storm will in many ways resemble a winter hurricane, battering the easternmost New England with uh, potentially damaging winds. In addition to blinding snow, forecasters are expecting the storm to become a so-called bomb cyclone because its pressure is predicted to fall so fast, an indicator of explosive strengthening. Scary. The storm could rank as the most intense over the waters east of New England in decades at this time of year. While blizzard conditions could pace some coastal areas, the most extreme conditions will remain well out over the ocean. See... A bomb cyclone. that That's scary, that idea. But a third, to have a third of the country in extreme cold right now, right. to the point that people, a 20-something-year-old, 26-year-old woman died just leaving a party the other day, went on a walk or something with her friends, probably not, you know, probably under the influence or whatever, right. but then got lost and died. I mean, 11 people have died because of the cold. Yeah. And now we've got cyclone bomb. The bomb cyclone coming in. So scary. Uh, finally, words we're sick of. Northern oh. Michigan's uh, Lake Superior State University today or yesterday released its 43rd annual list of words banished from the Queen's English for misuse, overuse, and general uselessness. This okay. year's list includes uh, the term, let me ask you this. You'll hear that on a list. Let me ask you this. Uh, unpack. Unpack this for me. Oh, that, interesting, that yeah. Impactful, nothing burger, tons. Mm. Tons di- of fun. Dish. Yeah. What's you know, Dish or dis? Dish. Okay. The idea of like, let's dish and let's sit dish, down and gossip. Let's talk about right? something, yeah. Drill down. Let's drill down on this topic. Mm. It's just I'm, overused I'm going to try to use some of these. Let that sink in, and a top vote getter was fake news. Mm. What, what was the first one again? Something about... Uh, Let me ask you this. I say that... 
pretty much on a daily basis. Do you really? Oh, yeah. They're just empty phrases that you use to set up what you're trying to say yeah. when you could just say it. Well, but, yeah. The others are, Then you'd have to think about it. The others are pre-owned, onboarding, offboarding. I say that with our producers on the t- all the time when I'm training them. This is your onboarding. Hmm. Really? Yeah. That's why they come talk to me. Then. This yeah. is your onboarding. Uh, we're going to... Yeah. Please keep your hands in the onboarding and, at and all And they time. have hot water heater. I'm not sure really? why that's on the list. Hmm. It's kind of a needful oh, I gotta thing, right? I do need a new hot water. Gig yeah. economy. Yes. And uh, kofefi. People are tired of hearing <laughs> oh. the word kofefi. The only thing I say to my wife more than, let me ask you something, is I will uh, start talking to her as if I've been... Including her in the conversation in my mind. Does that make sense? You just jump like, halfway into the... Yeah, yeah. I've been thinking about something, and then I'll just start talking to her as if she's been a part of that conversation already. Oh, interesting. W- How does she context. handle that? What does yeah. she... She's like, wait, what? What, are you, what are you talking and about? Confusion yeah. Or does she just walk you to the you know counter and get you your little pill? And when I start talking, I don't give any specifics. It's like, yeah, I don't think I'm going to do that anymore. She's like, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> Every day. Why Every day. Have you thought of including her earlier? Mm. And maybe some of the thinking about it. I just, I feel like we've been married long enough that she should know what I'm talking about. I mean, about. if she loved you, you'd think she'd be <laughs> in on this conversation already, right? That's interesting. I I don't do that. I don't. I don't just start a conversation in the middle of a conversation. Hmm. I've learned lately that I just like to be quiet now. I usually weigh the hassle of trying to inform the the person on all the issue to get them to the point where I can, you know, yeah. explain to them the part that's most important to me. But have you ever noticed like it's really just, hard to bring up everything? Jeff's just jumping to the most important part, and then you have to, do I want to give them all the context? Eh, yeah. Then I just skip the conversation. And yet I also uh, think that my wife should spell things out for me clearly and perfectly. Yeah. Well, no, Yeah. I think a lot of us feel that way with you. You know what I mean? It's funny. Hmm. We've been we've been away from each other for 10 days. I've missed you. I know. You talked to me before the show. It's unprecedented. It was totally weird. Normally, <laughs> I would save my words for you. You didn't even see me, but you called out for I, me. You're I, like, I, Jeffrey. I sensed, your, I sensed your spirit. Are you here? Plus, I heard you coughing or blowing your nose, I think it was. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you're, you've overcome your cold as I well. I think you were just worried. Jeff, are you alive? Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Hey, up next, we're going to be talking about, uh, is D.C. A, a cynical swamp? Is it really a swamp to be drained, just full of a bunch of cynical people? Or is that just how the rest of the country sees the swamp? Uh, joining us will be actually a... a, a a writer, a, one of the um, speech writers for President Obama, David Witt, will be joining us, talking to us about an article he wrote about the fact that the D.C. area may be filled with more optimistic, hopeful people than anywhere else on Earth. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. I walk through the streets and I realize that everything...
Many people believe that Washington, D.C. is a cynical swamp, a place where politicians push their career agendas and leave a trail of hopelessness behind. But our guest today believes that our nation's capital is the most hopeful place in America. Here to speak with us about this is the former senior presidential speechwriter to President Obama and the author of the book, Thanks, Obama, My Hopey Changey White House Years, uh, David Litt. Welcome to the show. Thank you for being with us, David. Thanks for having me. This is uh, – it's true. Everybody – when you look at D.C., I don't, it's hard not to think everyone's cynical because there's so many – there's just so much, I guess, angst against each other and everybody pushing their agenda. But you're telling us um, in, in a recent, in a recent um, article that you wrote that uh, it's probably filled with a lot more optimism than people might give it credit for. That's right. I'm not suggesting that D.C. does not feel swampy. I think it feels <laughs> very swampy, especially these days. I mean, you know, I think the number of lobbyists who worked on this tax bill recently was like 6,000. Um, you get all sorts of politicians saying one thing and then doing another. So I, I'm not um, uh, disagreeing with all the reasons that so many of us, both in and outside D.C., are frustrated with Washington. But I do think that one of the things that I learned from moving here and from working here with some amazing people was that so many people come to Washington because they really do believe that they can make a difference here. And I think that's something that gets overlooked. I mean, and a lot of young, kind of optimistic, hopeful people that really want to change the world gather together. Is it because you've worked with a president, you've been in those meetings. Is there something about the process that eventually turns them to be less hopeful, less optimistic, or is it, um, or or what actually happens that makes it seem so swampy? Well, I think that over time, uh, you, you see two different things. One is that you're always going to have people acting in bad faith, and I think unfortunately. Uh, a lot of the time when power is concerned, uh, people who act in bad faith, they tend to be power hungry. And so you tend to see those examples. And I think it's up to all of us to push back against that and to try to make sure that the people who are in power deserve to be and are, are seeking power for the right reasons. Um, for people closer to my age, I think you do see some people become cynical. But I think more than that, um, what you really see is people – having to confront the sort of idealism that we all have when we're younger with the realism that you gradually pick up as you get older. I mean, I moved to Washington when I was 22, uh, you know, it was right at the beginning of the Obama administration. Whatever you think about President Obama, it was this exciting time full of idealism for a lot of people. And I don't think I'm a cynic these days at all, but I do think that I'm more realistic. My view is a little bit more textured. And sometimes holding that in your head can be more difficult. And so I do think cynicism is a concern. I I think the bigger concern these days is actually probably not from the young people becoming cynical. It's from the politicians who really are doing sort of favor trading and the kind of saying one thing and doing another that makes so many people disillusioned with D.C., sometimes for good reason. Do do you see – I mean, because it is so complicated now with so many, you know, lobbyists and other people's hands now in the mix – um, and just the the power swapping and um, kind of the t- the tone and the tenor that's now more of a more seems to have a, a stronger place back in D.C. Is it is it harder now to make change than it was for whether an optimist or a pessimist or a cynic? Is it harder to make changes today in D.C. than ever before? 
I think in some ways it is harder to make changes in Washington, and that's less because of the nature of the individual people who are running the government, um, whether you agree with those changes or not. You know, I'm, I'm a Democrat. I strongly disagree with a lot of the changes that the Trump administration, the Congress are pushing. But one of the reasons it's hard for either party to make changes when they're in control is just the way that the system is set up, that there's all of these veto points. Um, for example, when President Obama was in office, uh, over and over again, we would have the support of a clear majority of the American people on legislation, often a clear majority of the Congress, but we couldn't get a vote. Hmm. So, for example, immigration reform, um, you know, if it had ever come to a vote, uh, absolutely would have passed both houses of Congress. But for a variety of procedural reasons, uh, it never made it to a vote. A lot of stuff in you know, the filibuster used to be used in the Senate fairly rarely to have that 60 vote threshold. And now it's become routine. And that's true with both parties, although it's, the reason it's true is because uh, of what happened when Mitch McConnell was the Senate minority leader back in the day. Mm. So I think what we're seeing is this kind of, uh, it, it is harder to get things done, but at the same time, we're also um, seeing more and more the, the what the American people want isn't happening out of Washington on, on issue after issue. And I do think that's a concern. And so it doesn't surprise me that people are becoming cynical. What I think is important to remember is that the it, it becoming disenchanted with the way the system is working is different than becoming um, assuming that everybody who moves to Washington isn't doing it for the right reason. Hmm. You know, it, it's interesting because so here I am uh, living in Utah, a traditional probably Republican, I guess, but. I was seriously moved by President Obama. Here he is, this young, charismatic leader with a really incredible, I think, story and um, charisma. I don't know. Just I was. It was just a cool time and a cool president. Um, do, do you? But but I'm still a Republican. And then there's the whole idea about the ideas and and the differences in um, in how we see the political world. But I feel less energized in a way about uh, President Trump now. And so I wonder, is is some of this – you have all of these young, hopeful people in D.C. Is some of this – and we've talked about it on the show before – ageism? I mean how a lot of our senators are a lot older than before and we don't have as much young. It doesn't seem – vibrant uh, talent sitting on the benches of our political uh, groups anymore. Is, is some of this about age? Is some of this or are there other factors that made the difference between an Obama and maybe a Trump today? I think the biggest difference is the uh, how much a, a president prioritizes the national interest versus their political interest and their self-interest. Hmm. And again, you you may not have agreed with President Obama's policies. You know, I I worked in the White House for several years. I'm well aware that many people didn't, and, and we knew <laughs> that going in. Um, but I do think that even people who disagreed with President Obama, as you were saying, for the most part admired him as a person. A lot yeah. of people felt like this is somebody who's a decent person. He's trying to do his best, even if they didn't agree with what he was doing. Um, you know, you can see that in his family. And I think one of the reasons that Americans are concerned, and I would say rightly so, uh, about the Trump presidency, regardless of what party you belong to, is this sense that, um, you know, we just learned that all these foreign governments are doing favors for Trump-aligned businesses. Uh, you know, you look at the tax bill and the Trump family will save a billion dollars from the tax bill that the president then promoted, and so will many members of his cabinet. And I think that sort of thing 
uh, is making people cynical, not necessarily about American government, but certainly about this administration. You wonder whether they're doing it for the right reasons. I, I personally would be surprised if they are. It's it's fun to have uh, – again, we're speaking with David Litt, who was an American speechwriter, served uh, under the Obama presidency, um, also the author of the book, Thanks, Obama, My Hopey, Changey White House Years. David, uh, was it was it different for you to write a speech for the president that was more policy-oriented versus um, a, a, another speech that might be more – um, you know, a hopeful or, or I guess you or would you merge any policy speech into a hopeful greater America speech? Does that make sense? It does make sense. In my book, I write a bunch of times about speeches I didn't write very well. And one of the mistakes I often made, especially when I was starting, was to just write about a policy. Hmm. You know, let's say we're writing a speech about infrastructure to write just about infrastructure. And one of the things I learned is that for a president, every speech, every piece of communication is really about America as a whole. So, you know, you're talking about that issue, you're talking about infrastructure and what we're doing and build, you know, a bridge or a tunnel or a road, whatever. But then it has to connect to this bigger vision for the entire country and one that unifies everybody, that everybody, even people who don't necessarily agree politically with the policy, um, even people can can agree with those values and the ideas behind that policy. Yeah. And so that's what we tried to do, you know, and it was one of the things that makes me really proud to have been part of that, uh, part of the Obama administration was that it was always about trying to connect the individual things that the president was doing to his bigger vision for the United States. That is powerful. Did that come, David, from the leader? Did that come from President Obama or did that come from the hopeful uh, wishful David Litt that then brought that into your work? It absolutely came from President Obama. One of the things that I think is really remarkable, if you look at Barack Obama as a political figure, and you look at the 2004 speech that he gave at the Democratic National Convention, which was the first time he really stepped onto the national stage, the policies are different because the times are different. But so much of the vision, so much of the idea of who we are as a people and what we can achieve and where we can go as a country is the same. Hmm. And one of the amazing things about getting to be a speechwriter for someone like that is you never had to sit and wonder, okay, what does the president think about these big issues? You could go back to big speeches that he had written um, or you know, that he had collaborated very closely on with the chief speechwriter, and you could take those and use those as a sort of um, touchstone. for the specific thing that you were writing. And that was a real privilege. I mean, you know, one of the things that I always feel like is uh, I I really lucked out where I don't think uh, anybody's going to get a better speechwriting job than the one that I had for for a couple of years. Well, and what else is fun is that um, your President Obama seems to take the giving of a speech more serious than President Trump does now. Like, it's almost, and you, I would feel really good writing for a President Obama because you almost know he can really deliver it well um, as, as just an order. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that President Obama, uh, first of all, excelled at. I mean, you know, yeah. his rhetorical ability is just, you know, pretty, pretty unmatched, I would say, in recent years, certainly, prob- probably longer back than that. But the other thing, too, I think that's important is President Obama recognized that as the president, every word you say or write or tweet 
they all matter, um, and they all have an impact that's much bigger than if you or I were to say or write or tweet something. And so, you know, it is this very strong contrast. Uh, it's one of the things that my book ended up being about, even though that was not, was not the point. It just sort of happened that way. Mm. Between a, a president who really believed and understood that words matter and a president who, you know, you look through his Twitter feed and, and he does not seem to be careful with his words. And I, I, that has consequences. Well, and even today, the you know my nuclear weapon, my nuclear button is bigger than your nuclear button, and my nuclear button works. Um, can, can you could you even have fathomed that coming out of an Obama White House? No, not at all. I mean, especially I, I just on Twitter policy. Not yeah. No, I, I worked in domestic policy, not foreign policy. But I can tell you that the foreign policy process there was a process. It wasn't this impulsive. And, uh, you know, kind of off-the-cuff statement and, um, and a little childish. I mean, that's the thing that, you know, is kind of like mine is bigger than yours is not a good way to right. conduct policy in a nuclear, you know, where, where you have two countries with nuclear weapons who are adversaries. And this sort of thing is kind of, you know, I, I did a lot of jokes for President Obama. I work for Funny or Die, the comedy uh, website today. This sort of thing is funny until it really is not funny, and it does concern me that it's not just a matter of somebody who doesn't have the discipline to you know, think before they tweet, but that we could see real, potentially deadly consequences from something like this down the road. Yeah, in fact, James Clapper, uh, former intelligence officer, said um, the problem is you're goading somebody that you don't know where their ignition point is. You're, you're goading somebody that may really just react. And well, that's you right. don't know. Yeah. Right. And I think there is that um, that nature of sort of instability, which for what Republican presidents, Democratic presidents, the the sort of history of the United States, certainly in the modern era, has been that the United States has has asserted itself as the responsible, less impulsive player, especially when dealing with a rogue state like North Korea. And so to see us abandon that. Uh, I think is we don't know fully what the consequences are going to be, but I don't think any of them are going to be good. Hopefully they're just minor rather than truly catastrophic. Does this do – do you sense that – I mean that this leads to more cynicism about Washington? Um, what You know, President Trump's – some of the language he's using, some of the name-calling he's using, um, does it lead, lead to more cynicism or does it actually open up more hope that, you know, anybody can do this? <laughs> Well, I don't know that it uh, – I think one of the lessons, and I may be biased here, but one of the lessons I think we're learning in this political moment is that not anybody can be president. It is a tough job, and it takes somebody uh, you know, who has the right temperament and the right approach. I do think that there's less cynicism about elections than there might have been. Um, you know, I, I, When I talk to my friends or when I hear from Democrats who are – younger than I am, you know, remind me of me when I was in college, the energy around, um, you know, getting people in office who do represent us better than the current Congress and better than our current elected officials is pretty overwhelming. I mean, it is, uh, it reminds me of 2008 with the Obama campaign. So certainly, at least on the Democratic side, I think there's a lot of energy. I can't speak yeah. to the Republican side. I think the uh, not so much a cynicism, but a genuine concern is how do we fix Washington so that once we have people here who are, uh, you know, have a clear majority of Americans backing what they're doing, 
uh, you know, I think one of the things that's pretty remarkable about the current situation is, again, we have a president who wasn't elected by a majority of the popular vote. So these aren't policies that most Americans, most Americans saw this coming. They didn't want it. And so, what, you know, let's go to the future. Imagine when you have a president who does have a clear mandate and you have a Congress who shares that mandate. How can you make sure that they can make the changes that Americans would like to see in their day, in their lives? How can you make sure that Congress can be improving rather than holding back the this just daily life of Americans and, and American families? Hmm. And we have a lot of work to do to figure out where the system is breaking down and how to fix it. But I think rather than cynicism, I, I'm encouraged by the amount of energy I'm seeing for taking on that project. Is, do you think there will ever be a day where we have a unifying president that that can really uh, garner more than 50 percent and can can bring us all together? I think it's unlikely that we're going to have your presidents who were sort of wild, widely popular on the scale that they used to be in a bipartisan way because politics has gotten so sorted where, you know, you can watch only the media that you agree with or you can, uh, you know, only surround yourself with people who feel the same way you do. And so we have this partisan splitting. I do think that one of the things that surprises me is how quickly, in retrospect, so many Americans remember even President Obama, who has not been an ex-president very long, quite fondly. So I think you have a lot of Republicans who maybe didn't necessarily agree with President Obama's policy agenda, but we saw this during the fight for uh, over health care repeal in the summer, saying, you know what, I, I didn't like the Obama part of Obamacare, but this policy that is providing insurance to someone in my family or someone I care about, uh, that's something that I don't necessarily want to get rid of so quickly. And you've seen um, President Obama, now former President Obama's approval ratings, rise pretty dramatically now that he's moved from being a president to an ex-president. Yeah. I think we will have presidents where we will look back on them uh, in a bipartisan way. But I think, you know, politics is uh, is pretty split right now, and I don't see that as likely to change. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't be able to do things as a country. Yeah. What advice would you give, uh, you know, I mean, as a parent, if my son said, hey, I want to go back to D.C. and I'm going to make a big difference and I'm going to go work for a senator, in my head, I'm like, oh, boy, you sure you want to go back there? <laughs> but what what advice would you give uh, about it not being a cynical swamp that, you know, even just the hopeful uh, aspirations of uh, a, a young person can go back there and make some difference. I would actually say start on a campaign rather than moving straight to Washington D.C. because so much of the um, so much of the energy in Washington comes from the campaign trail, and if you miss that, you sometimes don't realize why you're doing what hmm. you're doing, or it's hard to remember. So spend time outside of Washington first. Figure out why the decisions that are being made there really do affect people's lives. And then when you go to Washington, it makes you less likely to forget that stuff and less likely to, as you pointed out, kind of become one of those more cynical, more swampy people that we all uh, are <laughs> rightly concerned are running the show. That's so good. David Litt, thank you so much for your great insight. Again, um, a former senior presidential speechwriter to President uh, Barack Obama and also the author of the book, Thanks, Obama, My Hopey Changey White House Years. David Litt is his name, and he um, he continues to uh, be a head producer and writer for Funny or Die's office in Washington, D.C., um, very interesting insight that uh, he wrote in an article on the Washington Post. Good stuff. Again, just uh, trying to understand what was, what is, and what will be right here on the Matt Townsend Show. 
Welcome back, friends. It's good to be back with you. It's a Wednesday, and so whenever you start your week on a Wednesday, you've already won, right? I mean, <laughs> you've, you've already won. That's the home run right there. Because then each three days you're done. Then you have another week, and then the next week there's another holiday. Woohoo! Woohoo! Excuse me. It's hard. This Super was the excited. same schedule for like college too, right? That's yeah. kind of how we're following the, the college we're at, their schedule there. But when I was in school, it was hard to get back into the whole cycle yeah. of college because you come back from New Year's, you're here a week, and then you take another day yeah, off. Yeah, but you're assuming that you know education is important. <clears throat> I just wanted to feel like I had a schedule again. I know what you mean. Yeah. It was difficult. I had to shave my beard last night. I was wondering if you had a full beard. I almost came in and and uh, had it with me one day here because you had requested that last Why time. Why did and you didn't do it? Well, I don't really want negative attention from some of the higher ups. Well, yeah, but if you didn't want negative attention, it's your back hair. I'd worry about. <laughs> hey, let's. Uh, th- apparently, there's some new research about fake news. We just learned that fake news is one of the words that we are tired of. We're tired of. We're using it too much. Which, by the way, fake news. Two words invented by President Trump. Right. And our last guest talking about yeah. he sees Washington, D.C. as a hopeful place. Not not just this big cesspool, the swamp so that needs to be drained. He's kind of pointing to some fake news there as someone <laughs> yeah. keeps talking about the swamp. Right. Not uh, a swamp. So three political scientists, one from Dartmouth, one from Princeton, and one from the University of Exeter. Exeter. So that would be the UK. Um, they looked at some data from during the 2016 election on who consumed fake news, specifically data between October 7th and November 14th of 2016. A sample of 2,500 Americans who agreed to have their online activity monitored anonymously. Yeah. What they found, one in four Americans saw at least one fake news story. One in four. One in four. Trump supporters visited the most fake news websites, which were overwhelmingly pro-Trump. However, fake news consumption was heavily concentrated among a small group. Almost six in ten visits to fake news websites came from the 10 percent of people with the most conservative online information diets. Okay, but hold on. Yeah, go ahead. So fake news is really consumed more by Trump voters. That's what this report is saying. But is but it's so it's negative news against Trump. But consumed by Trump voters, or is it negative or, news against Clinton maybe, or whoever? Both. It could be positive oh. or negative against Trump, because positive it, or it negative against like, Clinton. Yeah, but Trump really only cared about fake news against him. Well, sure, but the, you could see that energizing someone who was one of his supporters if you see something that's negative against yeah. him. You know what I mean? But do they actually discern if it's fake or not? It doesn't get into that. So, I'm going to oh, bet not. It says, overall, fake news stories made up a small percentage of what the participants read, 1% for Clinton supporters. Six percent for Trump supporters. Mm. Mm. These are also people consuming all kinds of news on top of yeah. that, right? Yeah. Says Americans over the age of sixty were much more likely to visit a fake news site than younger people. Really? So I'm not sure if that's because younger people maybe can discern something that or doesn't look right. Or maybe younger people aren't reading news. Maybe younger people aren't reading. A uh, key quote from the uh, study, for all the hype about fake news, it's important to recognize that it reached only a subset of Americans, and most of the ones it was reaching already were intense partisans. Yeah. They were also big consumers of hard news. These, uh, these are people intensely engaged in politics who follow it closely. So, yeah, and these are probably people that go to their favorite sources always, same sources. Right. So the the big finding is that a lot of the, the news and speculation around it has uh, kind of 
been taken out of context. Like yeah. it was this huge, like 80% of what they're reading is wrong. And it turned out to be like one to 6%. How, mm. how do you know that what you're telling us isn't fake news? <laughs> sure. Okay. We can just not believe anything. <laughs> that's really the best way to go through life. See, that's the problem with the fake news thing. Is uh, but really all you have to do is read it with a little discernment, and mm-hmm. you'd be like, "Yeah, that doesn't seem right." No, even if it's sourcing sources, which they usually don't resourcefully. Yeah, it's, just thought I'd toss another one in there. Yeah, well, we appreciate that. Interesting, interesting help. update on fake news. And so, if you're out there as a as a listener, that's one of the reasons you'd want to listen to the Matt Townsend show because we're not going to bring you fake news. We might make up some news. Wrong, but, but we would call that empty news. Not fake news. We'll continue the journey, folks, uh, doing what we can to help you uh, get ahead in life. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back as you're uh, getting over and settling down after Christmas. you got to get over a lot of things. Um, not just all the festivities, the fun, all the family time you've had, all the movies you were able to go watch. You also have to get over all the treats. Right. The, the snacks that those people Those can be brought. dangerous. And now, not just for how? your waistline. Yeah, how? It could be dangerous for your house. My The snacks from my neighbors? So it's interesting because last treats. year for Christmas, it seemed like every neighbor in our neighborhood came by with treats. And we were a little uh, surprised this year. Yeah. We just weren't getting them. We thought, man... I guess maybe that was just because we were new, people were bringing them by. Well, it turns out people waited until after we left town to bring the treats by. Yeah. So they started to pile up on our doorstep, unbeknownst to us. We knew that one of these people had brought us a treat. So my brother-in-law just happened to come over to borrow something, and he saw all the treats, and he's like, I'll just put them inside their house. Well, we come home, and somebody had left this chocolate loaf of bread. Ooh. And uh, we Yum. noticed that one of the corners had been nibbled at. <gasps> so we thought, okay, is that it, your brother? It was brother-in-law. Uh, it was nibbled. <laughs> it was nibbled at uh, outside, and then my brother-in-law brought it in. Not so. Uh oh. And my wife started noticing little mouse droppings in several of our drawers. You sure, it wasn't like cake. I'm anyway, pretty sure. Yeah. Yeah. Because we would clean it up the and mice, then more would show up. The mice were coming out. Yes. And we've never had a mouse problem before. So then we had to go and do the whole mouse trap thing. Yeah. And, and the mouse uh, attractant. Uh-huh. I think it's, it's like this little mouse musk gel that kind of foams yeah. up and uh, supposedly works better than peanut butter yeah. and cheese. Also, not true. No. But we found I, Terry's out. Terry's been wearing mouse musk for years, and I haven't <laughs> seen one mouse around here. So, I mean, we had a very productive coming back from Christmas, not only having to throw away most of these treats. Yeah, you can't nibble and on something. I don't mean to be ungrateful to either the neighbors or my brother-in-law, who was doing what Just, we probably right. would have done in that case. But uh, we did finally catch a mouse. I'm not sure if it was the mouse. No, you're not. If it was the only mouse. Because the rule is, you know, if you find one, then you're missing five more. Are you serious? That's the rule. It's the rule of five. Because they did did the guy, was he wearing a bow tie? Did he have a briefcase? The the mouse? Uh Uh-huh. I didn't. I couldn't tell inside the trap. I just saw his little tail sticking out. Or you got to look to see if it's wearing an apron. 
and has a big bouffant hairdo because you, know, you got to find the mom or the dad. And then once you get the mom uh, or the dad, then you're probably going to have three or four little kids running around. Another another clue that we had a mouse problem. I went to grab some peanuts from this bag of peanuts that I, I like to indulge in every once in yeah. a while. And I noticed that most of the peanuts that I pulled out of the bag were just shells. Yeah. So my wife has banned peanuts from our house now. Really? Which is one of the healthier food choices that I've been going after. It sounds like she should ban her brother. So I actually – what finally got the mouse was I had to take one of those peanuts and put it in the trap and that's what got it. Ah, really? But I am worried. How do we know yeah. that there are no other mice? Well, and if I were you, I'd get rid of the mouse musk because it's making me twitch. But do you think that's fair? Should peanuts – No. Should they be banned in my household? No, peanuts so, are people too. All because of the holiday treats, I can no longer have peanuts. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Not not that I'm not grateful. No, it's going to be good for your body someday. Um, well, we wish you the best of luck at your home, and may you know may you f- you find the family. Mm. Scary. Nothing worse than the little infestation of mice. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. We'll continue the journey straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, folks. Welcome back to the program. Dr. Matt here, along with Jeff and Terry. The gang is gathered, finally back together again. I missed you all so much. Every time I'd go to a movie, which was like three or four times, I thought of you all. Yeah, we went to a uh, quite a few movies as well. We saw three, two of which I'd already seen. Did you, So I saw my movie that I recommend to everybody now. Not Star Wars, but I would recommend that. That's a mm, great flick. For you. But uh, The Greatest Showman. It was good. I can't get enough of it. I love the soundtrack. There was hooting and hollering going on, all from a man, by the way. Yeah. And what a – he's got a kick. No, I'm not talking about Hugh Jackman. I'm talking about an audience member. Oh, Just during the opening scene where where you see Hugh Jackman kind of in the shadows. And this guy was like, woo! (laughs) Woo! (laughs) He was excited. Oh, it's a great show. Did did you see that yet, Terry? Terry, you I'm probably going to be confused because I'll be, you know, is that Wolverine in a top hat? What's happening? Yeah, totally. Because you know, when way. I saw when I saw what was the French Resistance movie, Les Mis. Les Mis. He's in the sewers, jumps out of the yeah. sewer. I'm like, here's Wolverine. Oh, it's just Wolverine, that guy singing a song use again. Use your blades, dude. Yeah, dude. Well, you, you do know that he's done quite a bit of Broadway, right? Oh, I'm well aware. Okay. I just choose to block that out because he's Wolverine, and I don't want to sully the image of Wolverine with musicals. <laughs> Hold well, on, but sully he's also he's of... also not going to be Wolverine. Yes, again. he's done. He's really he's it. That's good because I mean he's old. So he, the last one he did was Old Man Wolverine. They were going to call it Old Wolverine. And so now they have hmm. to find someone new to be Wolverine because hey. th- now the X-Men are going to continue in the Disney Empire. Have you seen, though, for as old as he apparently – he's 50. He just turned right. 50, which isn't old. It is for Wolverine because Wolverine's no. not supposed to age. I know, but have you uh, – oh, isn't he? Yeah, it's part of that. his regenerative uh, – regenerative, His uh, regenerative? There you go. Uh, mutant power. 
Wow. That's his mutant the power. He regenerates. You could put that sentence together. Yeah. Now, the adamantium, like, skeleton that was put in by a, a secret Canadian government black and the ad- ops situation. Adamantium. Okay. Again. Not a lot. See, I, I can't say regenerative. I can't even say it again. But, you but can I can say, say the other words that yeah. don't. So the greatest showman was good. It was great. And, by the way, <laughs> Hugh Jackman nice. is ripped. Well, He's I mean, jacked. He honestly, sort of. as far as the movie stars go, yeah. when when you see his Wolverine picture, yeah. he is as ripped as any movie star sure. I have ever seen, ever. It's, I, I just don't think it's like useful muscle. It's more like show muscle. Well, no, but like, I mean, there's like Arnold Schwarzenegger fake, I mean, real muscle, but it's yeah. like useless. Well, for, it's yeah. like, I mean, you got, the guy's got to have a neck. You got to have a neck. <laughs> yeah, but like functional mo- – I've seen him yeah. lift. I've seen Hugh Jackman lift. He doesn't lift that much weight. No, no, no. But, like yeah. he was deadlifting on 60 Minutes one time because they're showing his workout right. regimen. And I'm looking down at the weights and I'm counting them up and I go, I can lift more than that. Jealous but, but, but it's much? Not, but it's not, about, it's not about how much weight you lift. It's about having a strong core. Well, sure. I understand. But he's just – come on, man. <laughs> Step up your weight. We Plus saw, the guy we saw sing. Coco. Yeah, we saw Coco. Coco for the second time. Coco puffs. Did I see that him? is a great flick. It was just I cried even harder the second time. Did you? I I actually fell asleep. It was it was pretty embarrassing cuz I was down I t- had to take my son. We did take my baby. So I took and he's a perfect angel during movies. I took him down to the front row yeah, or one right. of the front rows and I reclined back and I was like making audible noises <laughs> as I was crying. I almost <laughs> I almost <laughs> made this <laughs> basically. Wow. But it was almost like uh, really? It was not. Did you make your baby cry? No, he was asleep. It was the person behind you. He like, also Man, slept. That baby's sniffling a lot. But I mean, it would. It was. I was this close to making a really ugly noise, like a like and an I emotional. Was looking, I was looking around me, like, can anybody see me, like, panting and like, yeah, just on the verge of bursting wow. out with a weird noise. I felt the same way during Jumanji. <laughs> <laughs> Jumanji was great. But I sat on the front row there and that – my neck – okay. So I'm having neck problems mm. from using my technology too much. Okay. Do you guys ever get that? I believe the technical term is nerd neck. Come again? Yeah. Nerd I, neck? I nerd get neck. a sore neck from doing dishes like a I'll good s- husband. I'll send you some videos on how to correct that. Do you – okay, do. Do, yeah, you, yeah. Uh, do you do enough dishes to get nerd neck? Oh, yeah. I doubt it. I did. I cleaned up the turkey Christmas Eve dinner, okay, so and that one. was. It's I do one the dishes meal. frequently, yeah. but enough to get nerd neck. Yes. So I then had nerd neck, and then I we got seats on the front row to watch Jumanji, mm. and I feel like I don't know. It looked weird on the front row because Johnson, what's his name? Who's the who's Dwayne the Dwayne Johnson? Dwayne Johnson, President just, he Johnson, looked like his body wasn't right mm. when you're that close. Well, I mean. Yeah. He just looked like he had a huge head. <laughs> Does President Johnson have a nice ring to it? Well, I think we've had one, right? Yeah, but yeah, that, that doesn't mean there was a good ring to it. I'm just asking well, you if yeah. President Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Now, The, Does rock, that the have... rock, the President The Rock. Yeah, it should be President The Rock. Okay. Yeah, that sounds really cool. <laughs> yeah, we went and saw um, Coco. Hmm. I think I fell asleep because I don't remember much of it. 
but there was about a half hour to 45 minute delay because the projector. Hey, ours had the same problem. They did, came you in a, and, did you get a free ticket? Maybe oh, it was yeah, because yeah. they yeah. had taken uh, the frozen short out. Could be. They came in and they're like, we have to replace the circuit board. This will take just a minute. If the movie oh. doesn't start, we'll give you a free pass. Yeah, they, if they it does start, enjoy the movie and then we'll give you a free pass. I looked at my wife and I'm like, so either way we win. Let's just sit here and see what happens. And it's it started I, up. It's ironic you don't remember what happened in the movie because it's a movie about remembering. Yeah. Huh. I think I fell asleep. Yeah, I really enjoy passing out in these movies. But Coco's movies. a great movie. It, yeah. it, by the way, Hollywood finally is doing their job. Well, we'll see. What do you mean? They finally put sleep? out a, a, an entire Christmas season worth of movies that yeah. you want to see. There was nothing for the entire year, and then all of a sudden, one week, bam, bam, there bam, were bam, like bam. 10 movies. Uh-huh. Then there's the one that is about the Pentagon Papers. The Post. The Post. That... I wonder how that will do. It'll be out in a couple of weeks nationwide. Do you Apparently, think it's going to – is it going to – I mean I'm sure it will receive all the nominations. It already has. Well, apparently Donald Trump – there's some speculation as to whether or not he will watch it. Who cares? Well – Not to be rude, but – Because I don't think it's very uh, oh, oh, yeah, well, Trump-friendly. Yeah. No, right. I'm sure it's not. I'm sure it's not. But it has – Well, the whole story was what Nixon was trying to squash this report. And he told the New York Times to stop, so the New York Times stopped, but the Washington Post didn't. And the Washington yeah. Post, like, we're journalists. We're going to stand up against the powers that be, which is, you know, reflective of right now. So, yeah, it probably wouldn't be a, a message he would like. I'll go see it because it has Mr. Saul Goodman himself mm. in it. Yeah. Everyone loves Saul. Better call Saul. Bob Odenkirk. Come again? That's his name. Bob Odenkirk. Is, That's the actor's is, is, name. Oh, Bob is Odenkirk. Oh, is it? Mm-hmm. Oh. There's a there's a funny scene where he's got uh, all these documents on an airplane with him with a seatbelt over yeah, it. And the steward that. is like, oh, those must be really important. Oh, you know, just government secrets. Not she a big walks deal. On by. <laughs> OK. Do you want extra peanuts? Um, oh, no. Okay. Unless you want to catch some ice. Don't go for that. Got a lot to cover. Uh, sad day for the LDS Church. Passing of President Thomas S. Monson last night, the leader of the LDS Church. And uh, it's a big deal. Whether you're LDS or not, he was an incredible man who for more than 54 years served as a leader of the uh, um, in the Twelve Apostles, one of the, the quorums, the leadership groups of the LDS Church, and was also the 16th president of the church. So uh, just, you know, trying to remember him, 90 years old, really an entire lifetime giving back and and uh, ministering to the individual. So uh, we all are mourning over that. Let's get to the rest of the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what else should we be paying attention to today? A brutal winter storm bearing down on the East Coast today. 11 people have already died across the U.S. due to cold-related deaths during this cold spell. The storm expected to strengthen rapidly as it heads north, and authorities are urging people from Florida north through Maine to stay indoors. The extraordinary strong offshore formation will resemble a winter hurricane the Washington Post reports, with uh, snow and forceful winds, New York's Long Island and New England are, will experience the heaviest snowfall, to- snowfall totals. The blast on top of deep freeze throughout the Midwest and New England that left 90% of the U.S. below 32 degrees on New Year's Day. What, wow. the, yesterday at 8 a.m. Eastern, the average temperature in the continental U.S. was 9 degrees. Oh! 
my, my son is on his LDS mission. He sent us a video of boiling hot water. They boiled hot water in Missouri. Oh, yeah. And then threw it out off of their deck, and it just turned to a cloud. And I just wow. put on a light hoodie and went about my business yesterday. I know. So. It was warm here in the mountain, <laughs> inner mountain area. Huh. President Trump on Tuesday taunted North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, warning Kim about U.S. Nuclear capabilities as tensions worsen between the two nations. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un just stated that the nuclear button on his desk uh, at all times. Will someone from his depleted food starved regime please uh. tell him that I have a button too? So, And mine is bigger and uh. more powerful. Uh. And mine works. So... Uh. Trump has a button that's bigger than the Button, button. Who's got the button? NBC News reported Tuesday that two U.S. military officials warned that North Korea could be testing a ballistic missile in the coming days. CBS News reports that the Pentagon believes the test could occur in the next week or two. If North Korea does conduct a ballistic missile test, it would be their seventh launch in the last six months. Wow. So something to look forward to. (laughs) <laughs> as both of them are talking about their buttons. Well, and uh, Kim Jong-un is like, hey, we have a button. I mean, if I push this button, I can now, reach anywhere in the United States. As we talked about last hour, and we've learned from reports, apparently there is a button on the president's desk to order Coke. Is it one of those easy buttons? I'm not sure. Okay. If he's thirsty, he punches a button. It's like an Amazon click button. And there's someone it, that brings a, Diet Coke a frosty Coke. So if we're in that moment, and yeah. he needs to make a decision, and he hits the wrong button... I mean... Everybody needs a button. Are these clearly marked, I guess, is my question. Does one say Coke and the other say bomb? Ah, bummer. I was trying to just order a Diet Coke. (laughs) (laughs) That's crazy. Uh, Other news, a little notice statement from Senator Richard Burr, Republican North Carolina, chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, detailed how unsophisticated the Russian ad targeting actually was in the context of the election when it came to the fake social media stories. Among the points he made, Maryland was targeted by nearly five times as many ads as was Wisconsin. Now, Wisconsin was one of the the states, 20,000 votes is what it came down to for Trump to win. Wisconsin, Michigan, and and Pennsylvania, I guess right through there were where these counties were targeted. But what they're finding is that Maryland was targeted nearly five times as many times more than Wisconsin was. And Wisconsin is one of these very important areas. Yeah, interesting. So So maybe it's not as big of a story as they're claiming. 35 of the 55 ads targeting Wisconsin ran during the primary. Right? So not even during the presidential cycle. It was before that. Interesting. And it says more ads targeted D.C. than Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania being another key area. D.C. not so much. D.C. was going to go Democratic. It wasn't even a concern. But they said more ads targeted D.C. than Pennsylvania. A total of $1,979 was spent in Wisconsin. $1,925 of it during the primary. Well, maybe, maybe, yeah, the the whole Maryland thing makes no sense. But maybe you only needed $1,000 in Wisconsin to turn Wisconsin. Could be. I mean, that's they were just efficient with their money, yeah, right? Just very efficient. The spending in Michigan and Pennsylvania were eight hundred twenty-three dollars, and Pennsylvania was three hundred dollars. So, no matter what, this isn't a a big scandal, right? I mean, and one and one of the questions from the Senate committee was, if they're targeting specific counties, how did they get the information to know that that county? was in play, that it was you know, a question yeah. whether it would go Democrat or Republican. Where did that information come from? Because the people that have those are the two campaigns. So it was right. someone feeding the Russians information, right? Right. But what they found was that more of the geographically targeted ads ran in 2015 than actually ran in 2016. Oh, interesting. So 
Is this much to do about nothing? Or was it more about the primaries? Could be. But primaries in Maryland would have been Hillary Clinton. Right. So were these GOP ads? That doesn't say. It just says they targeted Maryland. Maryland. Nearly five times as many ads as Wisconsin. Well, maybe. I mean, Maryland and Wisconsin. And the Wisconsin ones ran during the primary. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So, uh, again, I guess the big problem is, is somebody colluding with the Russians on giving them the data as to where to target. Right. And we, no matter what, we don't want the Russians advertising no. during our political process. Right. But I mean, we totally the, want we totally want Russia television. But don't at the same time, if they were spending twenty thousand dollars in Wisconsin versus two thousand dollars, yeah, it doesn't seem like they were doing much. But haven't no. you seen all those tested. Russian vodka commercials? No, really? Where? Hmm. Hmm. No. Well, uh, I mean, those, I those are ads. BYU broadcast. Those are Russian ads. And finally, it's a brand new year, but Amazon is still being creepy. The latest news is that the retail giant's Echo smart speakers could soon assess your shopping habits and sneakily nudge you towards buying from a particular brand that has a partnership with Amazon. The story from CNBC. Uh, You mean Alexa would do that to me? Right. As you stand now, the speakers allow advertising on music, news, or podcasts, although the voice isn't allowed to sound like or refer to Amazon's own voice assistant, Alexa. Sorry if I just activated everything. Uh, brands, though, are itching for more. Advertisers and brands are particularly focused on searching or search placement on Alexa because shoppers are more likely to select a top result on a voice assistant than they are on the web, where it's easy to scroll down and ignore written suggestions. They just uh, want right. the, the easiest thing. You right. say paper towels. Send me paper just, towels. Who cares? Just send me paper towels. Especially if it's a good deal. Who cares? For example, if a customer asks for toothpaste, Alexa can potentially say, okay, I can look for a brand like Colgate. Would you like Colgate? And then they send you Colgate because Colgate is paying Amazon to place Colgate in that search. That's interesting. But if I say, I won't say her name. Right. Uh, the Echo. Uh, Greca. Yeah. Uh, find me the cheapest price for Colgate toothpaste, whatever ounces. Right. Then then it's fine. You're asking for that brand. How great would that be if all of a sudden you just teach Alexa – Oops. Yeah, that's right. You just teach her that I always want the cheapest price for this brand. Right. But if you're asking for toothpaste yeah. and then it offers you the first brand. Mm-hmm. Well, then honestly, it doesn't matter to you. Yeah. But it matters to all the other marketers that are like, hey, I want to be first in line on Amazon. But if you're looking huh. on, if you're looking online, you're going to scroll down for the better price. Maybe look at other brands. Well, this one they give you one choice; you just take it because it offered it to you. And you're like, fine, yeah. do it. Do Do you always scroll down? Well, I don't have a voice assistant, so that's the only way I can shop. As you scroll down, you need you need voice assistants. We've no. been playing with ours. I'd it's rather, a lot of work. My wife does not want one in the house. Oh, we love it. We would call this the instrument's name and mm. then say, "Hey, play us <laughs> the greatest showman." CD. The oh. next thing you know. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. What's that? That's when the guy in the audience goes, Woo! Yeah. Woo! <laughs> Can I share my favorite Amazon news over the that occurred over the break? Yes. So I am not a fan of parades. I don't enjoy watching floats go sure. by. Anti-parade. This was funny. Yes. And uh, so Will Ferrell, who uh. is the founder of Funny or Die... I did not know uh, that. By the way, up, our last guest that's writes right. for Funnier He Day. teamed up with Amazon, and he and Molly Shannon 
uh, took on these personas yeah. of parade presenters or commentators <laughs> named uh, uh, it was Cord Hosenbeck yeah. and Tish Cadigan. Cord and Tish. And so I don't know if everybody that tuned in was expecting a farce, but that's exactly well, what they got. And the the cheesy commentary was spot on and actually quite funny. Was it the actual parade? It was. Okay. I didn't I, know if they did the actual parade or if they just kind of made something yeah. up. I was but wondering. the opening credit said the Rose Parade with these people presented by Funny or Die. Yeah. Right? So, I mean, at that point, you know it's, it's going to be a parade. Was this the actual... You Was could, this the actual parade being shown on television? Yes, you could stream but it live it on, on Amazon, Amazon Prime. Prime. But they had another one with the real Rose Bowl. On, on TV, there's like HG and all that these other networks amazing. that run it. So they, they made comments like when, when uh, George Bailey's car that was used in the film It's a Wonderful Life uh, drove by – they talked about the fact that, uh, yes, this is the car that he drove right before he attempted suicide. Really? Or was contemplating suicide <laughs> in the film It's a Wonderful Life. And uh, one of them – Not to laugh at that. Yeah. Yeah. One of them, the, the uh, farmer's insurance float goes by and they both started singing the tune to uh, We Are Farmers. Bum, ba dum ba dum bum, bum. And they're like, OK, now let's try it really sad. We are farmers. <laughs> and then, of course, more of the commentary. That's good. They sh- there was more of them shown than the actual parade. Thank goodness. <laughs> and so people, Thank goodness. people were mad. And there's like, a, there's like a thousand one-star reviews on this because people didn't get that it was a parody. They thought it was real, and then they were mad when they found out it wasn't. I don't leave right? reviews. I was... I really was passionate about Star Wars The Last Jedi. I wanted to go on Rotten Tomatoes and give it a huge review. I didn't do that. But I did go onto Amazon and give a five-star rating to this because of all the people that were giving it low ratings. Really? I think this is the greatest thing to happen to parades since, uh, well, nothing ever – inflatable balloons. No, nothing ever great has come out of a parade. So this is the first great thing to come out of parades. Just the joy of children. Chasing toffee and candy that's been thrown from the parade goers and then they run out into the middle of the street. It was so funny that even though we had a house full of people and I thought, oh, we should probably turn this off. This may be rude to have it on. I turned it off and my wife said, what are you doing? Turn it back on. Wow. It was that good. She was that engaged. Well, uh, it's, it's good. I, I, started watch, I, I started watching it and then I'm like, ah, oh, this is going to take forever. It was, kind of, it was mo- moving slow. Because parades mm. move kind of slow. It was funny, though. But I'm going to go back and watch it. I think it's available to watch again, isn't it? Cord Hosenbeck talked yeah. uh, frequently about uh, his fear of horses. Really? Yes. <laughs> you can't have a parade without a horse. Hey, uh, now that Christmas is over, you, you may be thinking, oh, I wish I had gotten my child this as a gift. Or maybe we need to return that one thing that doesn't fit right. Well, up next, we're going to be talking with uh, an expert that's going to share with us maybe the one thing your kids need to have. You won't believe it, uh, but it'll help in their development, their growth, and their health. How about the power of a houseplant? Hmm. Straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us on BYU Radio.
the Bronx, which is the poorest congressional district of America, elementary students grow plants inside of their classroom. In fact, these students have grown more than 40,000 pounds of vegetables alongside their community. Uh, And why are they growing all these plants in the middle of their classroom? Well, joining us to talk about it is Stephen Ritz. He brought the plants into his Bronx classroom to help his students improve their academic performance. Stephen is known as America's teacher. He's joining us today to share with us the power these plants are having on saving his students and their surrounding communities. He's also the author of the book, The Power of a Plant, and uh, founder of the Green Bronx Machine. We uh, are excited to have you here, Stephen. Thank you for your time. Well, I'm just thrilled to be here, and greetings from the South Bronx, where it's a balmy eight degrees today. (laughs) This is why you've got to bring the plants inside, Stephen. Absolutely. Nothing speaks more to that fact than the exact weather conditions of today. I like to say, you know, I grow vegetables, but my vegetables grow students, schools, communities, and opportunities. And, you know, it's funny because since the update, we've grown about 60,000 pounds. Have you really? And to think that we are doing it four stories up in the middle of public housing in a 100-plus-year-old building in the poorest congressional district in America and the formerly least lowest-performing school district in all of New York City is rather remarkable. Now, talk about it, because this isn't even just about food. This isn't about growing your food. You're saying this, this changes their lives. Bill, this is life-changing. Realize I myself have lost over 120 pounds simply by eating the food that I grow with children in school. And, you know, when you grow food and you can provide food week after week, month after month to a community that has limited means and limited access to it, you are changing every aspect of the community. And, of course, the coolest thing is, you know, we're growing it in class, aligned to Common Core content area instruction. So, you know, while the kids are growing vegetables, they're also growing tremendous academic outcomes. But if children grow fresh food, they eat fresh food. And if they eat fresh food, they are least likely to be involved in counterintuitive behavior. Uh, They are least likely to become obese and develop some of the chronic health problems that plague our community and communities around the world, whether you are rich or poor. Wow. That, I mean, it makes sense, right? Because there, the thing about growing food is it would take us back to kind of the law of the harvest. You reap what you sow. Absolutely. And, you know, sometimes a seed well planted gives you a crop of epic proportions. And that is my Green Bronx Machine story, you know, the one that I've captured in the power of a plant. If anyone ever ever told me, you know, five years ago, you know, five years ago, I was over 300 pounds, you know, today, 60,000 pounds of vegetables later, you know, my favorite crop is organically grown citizens, graduates, members of the middle class, kids who are going to college, kids who are growing and eating their way to good health and high academic performance. It's awesome sauce. That's cool. Now, what I wonder, though, just listening to you, Stephen, is, is this is this replicatable anywhere else? Because you are doing it with your power, your personality, your insight, your your charisma. Could I bring this to a school in Utah and make it work here? Absolutely. So case in point, it is not about the cult of personality. And that's what my story really highlights. That's what the book is all about. How do you make these programs replicable? How do you make them scalable? And we've done just that. I spent about three years focusing on outsourcing the technology. You know, what's something that you could go from a box to a garden, 
in 15 minutes if you're a, 45 minutes if you're a man or 15 minutes if you're a woman because you'll watch the video and read the instructions, which is still one class from here, and not need Steve Ritz. You know, not everyone can be a Steve Ritz, nor should they be. But everyone can be kind, competent, caring, and follow directions. So case in point, last year we've touched 22,000 students in Canada and six First Nations with our Green Bronx Machine curriculum and the use of tower gardens. Literally next week, I am headed to the fine, amazing city of Chicago, where in partnership with the Chicago Blackhawks and Jonathan Taves, we are going to put our programming into 20 pilot schools. Um, And to think that the programming here in the South Bronx is being replicated around the world and across the country is absolutely spectacular. Um, When I made the transition from do-it-yourself and kind of being that crazy garden guy outsourcing the technology we went from no schools in america to having a tower garden to over six thousand schools in just three years and we're just getting started so it is scalable affordable replicable you know tower gardens are low cost they are the singular most effective tool to growing expeditious amounts of food in class that you can imagine and again you know regardless of seasonality indoors using 90% less water and 90% less space you know i have children who love reading to their plants and uh, you know, we have the garden in the classroom. We don't. I don't put gardens in schools. I wrap entire schools around an indoor garden. I love that. So Plus, it is it's absolutely scalable. The State University of New York is using our curriculum to train both teachers and create workforce development programming. And most importantly, this technology that we use, whether you have one single tower garden in a class or a small community farm or a commercial farm, you know, there are tower garden farms now with thousands of towers that are supplying vendors around the world. You know, it's good agriculture practice certified and it is USDA approved. So we are beyond organic and truly a 21st century career, college and health opportunity in line with Mother Nature and a greater global good. How amazing. Available, yes. Low cost, yes. Check out our curriculum on the Green Bronze Machine website. Well, you also get to eat, right? You get to you get to eat your product. You they get they get the benefit of just the other day. In fact, during Christmas break, my wife had a coupon at a salad bar place, and I we told our kids we're going to get a salad, and they all kind of looked at us like, ugh. And uh, but honestly, the best meal we had the entire holiday season was just salads. And my kids want to go back. They want to go back. So the mere fact that they could grow it and love eating it um, and talk to it and read to it and consume it and live around it seems like it's a no brainer. Listen, when you put a seed in a child's hand, you're making them a promise. You're making them a promise that that seed is going to grow. And that seed is going to grow into something great. It's going to grow into something epic. And it's going to grow into something that you can either eat or sell. So whether you love vegetables or not, if I put a a penny in your hand and tell you 40 days later you're going to have a $5 bill, you might start sticking some pennies in the ground. And that's exactly what these children are learning. But most importantly, and sadly, so many of my students come to school hungry. Um, realize food insecurity is an issue around the states, but in this community, it is epic. Mm. Um, you know, 100% of my students qualify for free or reduced lunch, so when they can grow their own happy, healthy, tasty food in school, they get really excited. And most importantly, they start sharing it with their families. And when you can grow enough of it to impact families, you create a demand. And one of the things that I'm most proud of, in addition to happy kids, happy students, healthy students, and school performance, is the fact that we now have connected local families to local farms that are selling, you know, um, basically what we call the ugly fruits and vegetables, Hmm. um, things that could not go into a top shelf. But we are supporting local economies, and we're making fresh, healthy, nutritious food available daily for communities 
that never had access to it. And that is win-win-win for everybody. Oh, that is wonderful stuff. Talk about how you, how how it works. Um, who is the is the teacher always in charge of it? How do you delegate to the kids? What do the kids do, and what are they learning as they're doing it? So this is the good part. You know, the kids do all the work. I get all the credit. <laughs> That's a good it's system. An evil system, yeah. But literally, the children. When you have a piece of technology as effective and as simple and easy to use as a tower garden. Um, literally, it doesn't run itself. So let's be clear, all living things require maintenance, but it is indoors, it's in a classroom, and a couple of little, you know, a couple of few uh, moments of daily maintenance a day ensures a seamless process. And around that, what you do is you surround that process with jobs, with responsibilities, with the art and science of growing vegetables, with the predictive language, you know, ordinal directions, this the whole thing about, you know, in my class, we do math, around, you know, fractions, ratio, proportion, germination, prediction, all that stuff. Our seed cubes are arranged in, in exponential sizes from twos, threes, fours, fives. We look at the power of squares. We look at predicting. We look at measurement. We look at growth. We look at sales. We look at revenue. We look at costs. And then the other thing is we also look at taste. And what's remarkable is the children here in a community where we've had limited means and limited access to healthy fresh food have really developed a taste for exotic things like basils and spinaches and lemon sorrels and arugula and eggplant and strawberries. And the coolest thing is we're growing it in class. And also the other thing is that for children who traditionally have equated farming with almost slave labor or migrant labor or field labor. This is a 21st century opportunity. It's happening in a classroom. It's happening with an iPhone. It's happening in a school uniform. No school uniforms or no precious sneakers or clothes are getting dirty on my shift. It's all happening in a classroom. The art, you know, the art, the wonder, the aspiration, the inspiration of growing something and to see it grow so quickly. Because not only do we grow with 90% less water and 90% less space, we grow a lot faster. And so the children really on a day-to-day basis are excited to come in and see what they're growing and when they can eat it and when they can clip it and when they can cook it and what they can do with it. So that's very exciting in and of itself. And along the way, we've created in the least likely place the next generation of environmental stewards, yeah. which is absolutely phenomenal because when kids understand that the sum of the inputs equals the output – you know, that the same water that's in our toilets and in our sinks or running out of a fire hydrant is the very water we need to grow our precious plants, they start becoming water conscious. They start becoming electric conscious. They start becoming concerns about things that, you know, they never would have because it was never part of their landscape. Now they realize that just like plants, they are part of a living, breathing ecosystem and we're part of something much greater. And being responsible to it and caring for it, you know, creates a whole new culture within a school. Because when you teach children about nature, you teach them to nurture. And when we teach children to nurture, we as a society collectively embrace our better nature. That's what the power of a plant is all about. That's powerful. Well planted can give you a crop of epic proportions. And if anyone is case in point, I am. No, you and if you go to Green Box, uh, Green Bronx Machine dot org, you can watch videos. And, and these are these are the poorest schools in the country, but high rise schools and you'll see children maybe on the 10th floor or whatever of a school that is just a brick it's just a brick cement structure but inside their classroom you see life you see green life growing and it 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 does it changes the scenery it changes the feel of the room 
Children love being here. Yes, please go to the Green Bronx Machine website, watch some of our videos, and realize that even that Green Bronx Machine website, that's student-generated. The students run off social media. So, you know, imagine connecting thousands of people around the world for something good. That's what this is all about. You know, I like to say that we are poised, ready, willing, and able to export our talent and diversity in ways people have never imagined. And for many years, people thought the Bronx was burning. Now we are blooming. That's so beautiful. Even if you get out there and like the Facebook page. The children love tracking the likes. So everybody listening, <laughs> hang up with me and go like the Green Bronx Machine Facebook page. Children set metrics for me when I talk. It's all about accountability. Um, it's all about responsibility. And it's, it's all about engagement and growing something greater. And that's what this is really all about. We have a partner classroom. Believe it or not, it's very funny because here in the South Bronx, we are partnering with a classroom in Kansas. Oh, neat. And in the backyard of the school of Kansas, they have cows. And we take our little uh, computer screen on my, my FaceTime phone sometimes and look out the window and these children see 30-story buildings and can't believe it in Kansas. And, you know, we can't believe that they have cows so big <laughs> in Kansas. But when the children here see cows, they start thinking, maybe I need to eat less meat. And that's a good thing. Interesting. It's a good thing for everybody. Yeah. You know, it's education. It's shared humanity. Yeah. Is on your in one of your articles you you talk about the fact that there are certain things that we could grow that that really uh, you know they're kind of edible good starter plants that kids could you know start to garner their interest and, and grow their interest in gardening. Give us give us some things that we could maybe plant at home, put in our windowsill or whatever, and and just start our own little garden that the kids might be interested in. Super. So if you're at home and you don't have a lot of money, you have a little bit of time, there are things that I call the unders and the overs that are almost, you know, goof-proof. And what are the unders? Things that grow under the ground, like carrots and radishes, things that grow quickly and don't require a lot of soil. You could take a two-liter water bottle, split it down the middle, and start growing. On top of it, what do you put? You put your lettuces, your basic greens, your arugula, your spring mixes, your basils, your spinaches. Children love spinach. Oh, my God, you know, you tie it into Popeye and talk about, you know, <laughs> vitamin content in there. The children love lemon sorrel. Who knew? I didn't even know what lemon sorrel was. You know, literally five years ago, I couldn't name 10 kinds of vegetables. I'm now growing 37 kinds of fruits, vegetables, and herbs daily in my classroom with kids who didn't even know they could farm. So it's amazing. Is possible. But I always say keep it simple. Um, you know, do what's replicable. Do what's scalable. Do what's manageable. Um, you know, you always start with, I say, the unders and the overs. Stay away from things that need to be, um, you know, pollinated like tomatoes and peppers because that's a little bit more scientific, but always great to graduate to. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you will never grow wrong growing radishes, microgreens. I have children who grow microgreens. We plant them on a Friday. They come in on a Monday. Everything is sprouted. We measure the half-inch increments in terms of metrics and, you know, all the math activities through the weekend. Wow. On Friday, we get to eat them and do it again. It is awesome stuff. How great is that? Well, Stephen, I appreciate your time and just your great energy, your insight. Again, the name of the book is The Power of a Plant by Stephen Ritz, who's also the founder of Green Bronx Machine. Go check out that website, greenbronxmachine.org. And, uh, and see what they're doing there in the Bronx. Also, hey, maybe this is something you could suggest bring up to your PTA or at least start your own little, uh, your own little planting at home so you, so you can start creating life on your own and teaching your kids the wonderful uh, gifts of creating life. Powerful, powerful stuff. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Straight ahead, a little Coach's Corner, The Power of Optimism. Up next.
Welcome back, friends, and again, Happy New Year to you. We just uh, listened to um, Stephen Ritz, and if you notice, super positive, super passionate, optimistic about life, and he's making a change in the world. Um, He wrote the book, The Power of a Plant, and the whole time he's talking to me, I'm sitting there thinking, yeah, no, totally. I I totally buy your passion. I buy your energy. And I started realizing that how many of us just don't have any of that positivity, any of that energy? We, well, geez, it's just exhausting. The reality of our lives, I'm finding out, is um, it's hard. It's hard to stay positive and passionate especially without a purpose. And um, one of the things I guess I would just challenge all of us to do this new year, it's great to get out and get your New Year's resolutions made, all of that. That's wonderful. Uh, Especially, though, remember that most of those we won't finish. um, And we will just kind of go about it and gently slide back to where we were um, last year. What we could do, though, not to be a pessimist here, is we need to find some purpose this year. Some Thing different this year that's going to make a difference for you, but something that will make a difference for you from the inside out. When you look at somebody like Stephen Ritz, who's changing children's lives to the degree that he is, he somehow connected into a deeper purpose that's bigger than himself. So just a little assignment I want to give you as you're driving around thinking about life and starting your first week back from from your uh, holiday vacation is please focus on a bigger uh, on your bigger purpose your deeper yes there's a great quote that says it's easy to say no when you have a deeper yes burning inside of you do you know what your deeper yes your deeper yeses are do you know what really drives you what really moves you what is it that you want to be known for um and and let's seriously exert a little energy a little time right now this week even today to try to figure out a way that we can know what moves us. We need something different in our minds, in our thoughts, in how we look at life if we want to uh, to have a difference in our life. Uh, just recently, um, last night, in fact, the uh, the leader of the, and the president of the LDS Church, President Thomas S. Monson, passed away um, at the age of 90 years old. Um, he was at 23, as a young 23-year-old man, He was made a Mormon bishop, which is like a leader of a little Mormon church group. Um, But that group was filled with a lot of widows who were kind of in a more inner city world. And his job at 23 was to immediately start caring for the widows. And I think it formed in him a really um, incredible desire to, to actually administer and to take care of the one person, that their one need. And um, as he has passed, you know, a lot of LDS uh, faithful are are mourning his passing, plus every major newspaper is covering it, every major news outlet is covering it. But what, sometimes what they might get into are the, the latest topics of, you know, gay marriage and LDS church and other topics, women in the priesthood and the LDS church. But what they may be missing would be the 70-plus years that this man spent serving the individual, taking care of 
the one person. And uh, in an article that I read from the Deseret News, uh, a story that they told when he was a young bishop, uh, you know, 23 or whatever years of age, he's sitting in a meeting where his church leader is talking, and he feels this prompting go off in his head, his mind, his spirit that says, I need to go visit this one person. I need to go visit this one person. But he didn't want to stand up and, you know, make a scene and leave a meeting that his leader was talking in. So he he just basically struggled through the meeting and finally left at the end of the the person's speech he left and went to the to the hospital where this person was and when he got there he um found out that the man had just passed away and it devastated him and president monson left the hospital went outside and just started sobbing because here he had had a prompting to leave and to go and do and to take care of the one person and it, uh, and he, he didn't do it, he felt, at that point. And he made a promise to himself that from then on, when he had a prompting, he would always go uh, answer the prompting when he felt it. And I felt it. I've, we've had it in my own personal family life. Uh, he had visited. I've actually heard two or three stories of people close to me that he felt prompted to go visit, and he visited them and, and served them. So somehow we need to have that passion in our lives. And we need to find what's that guiding principle we're going to live our life by. For President Monson, it was the fact that he wanted to serve the one, go after the one, go rescue the one. But what will be the thing that will motivate you? What will be the thing that will drive you? Ask yourself, who are the people you respect and revere the most? And what, what is it that they do? Can you come up with your one thing, the one thing that you most want to be remembered by at your funeral? What do you want people to say about you as you pass? What's the one thing you want to be known for? And will you spend some time today thinking about it? We're not going to create uh, somebody as powerful and and as impactful as a President Thomas Monson if we don't um, spend a little time figuring out what our one thing is. So today, will you please just take that advice? Go start figuring out what is the one thing you need to bring to this world that if you don't bring it, it's not going to be here. It might just be you know, an attentive listener. It might be a, a service-oriented person. It might be a giver. Whatever it is, let's discover it in ourselves today, and then let's start offering it for the rest of the year. A little advice from your coach right here on the Matt Townsend Show, Dr. Matt. Uh, again, love having you back. Love being back with you. Our goal, again, is to help you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends. You know, there's nothing crazier than looking in your backyard and all of a sudden you got a moose all tied up in your uh, swing set. Really? By the way, I... How about a mouse in your uh, pantry? How about a mouse in the house or a moose in the swing set? Uh, I have had this happen. In my in-law's backyard, They there was a full-on moose. Really? The, the, the department of... What, they, what do they call it? Like the... Department of Moosen Moosen mm-hmm. had to come in, tranquilize it, and carry that bad boy out. So the reason I brought up the Amazon Prime uh, Rose Bowl parade commentary with yeah. Will Ferrell and Molly Shannon is because they do. There's a section of the commentary where they sing the "We Are Farmers" jingle, <laughs> right? And there is a farmers insurance commercial that has a moose who is stuck in a playground set. 
and uh, is thrashing around, oh. and the playground set ends up going through a motorhome. And as a viewer, you think, did that really happen? It's a little I'm extreme. Not, I'm not sure about the motorhome being, you know, destroyed by this playground, but apparently it does happen. It happened to you. It happened yeah, to this person. It's real. So, uh, yeah, same thing. This, uh, let's see, this was in Spokane County, and uh, wildlife officials had to be called in. And guess where they decided to, guess how they handled the situation? How? What did they do? Well, when you, when you want to help an animal of that size and of that uh, nature, you need to kind of put it down temporarily. Like like tranquilize like, tranquilize the bad yeah. boy yeah so they they tranked it in the behind oh yeah yeah that's where you got to hit it and uh, it did the trick because they were able to help the moose and then when the, the when the moose woke up all it had was a little scratch and a little mark by its eye it didn't puncture its eye or anything like oh. that and then it just got up and went away went away yeah you, well you you can't try to get it untangled nine hundred pounds no they're huge of moose. That's a lot of moosin. Sometimes, do you wish you could be tranked sometimes? Oh, no. When I had my gallbladder out, they did trank me. Ooh. They just said, okay, dude, you got – I'll give you a three-second head start. Take off. And I and started you, running and then – You're not even 900 pounds no, either. They darted me. But uh, it was the greatest tranquilization I've ever had. <laughs> and then I slept for two days. It was so nice. Yeah. So yeah. If, well, uh, if you've got a moose in your backyard, just get yourself a trank and call uh, Wildlife Protection. Yep, and they'll remove it for you. Wildlife Protection. That's the name. And uh, the, they're the, the, the kinder, gentler tranking people. They trank you with love. Don't get a, don't get a mouse trap for a moose no. like I did. Yeah, that wasn't – it's not going to work. It's not going to work. Hey, stick with us, folks. Uh, doing what we can on this program to help you understand how to trank a moose. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome back to the program. Dr. Matt here along with Jeff and Terry. The gang is all gathered. And today we're having opening exercises as we like to do. We like to open up, you know. And exercise. No, anybody that's not a Mormon wouldn't understand opening exercises. Do you want to try to explain what that is, Jeffrey? Well, it <laughs> opening exercises happens at the beginning of a church service. Yes. And we welcome basically, everybody. Basically announcing what is going the, to happen, yeah. uh, singing a hymn, saying a yeah. prayer. And we will end and giving some updates, some news, some... My father's pet peeve of, we would like to welcome you to the meeting today. So in my father's head, he's like, well, go ahead. <laughs> That's a dad joke. We would like to. We'd like to do it, but, but we're not going to. We're not going to do it. Uh, sad news for the LDS faithful. Um, President Thomas S. Monson, 16th prophet of the LDS Church, died last night about 10 o'clock, surrounded by family and friends. Uh, an incredible leader, been um, a leader in the church since he was 23 years old, when he started as a 23-year-old bishop over an aging ward with a lot of widows. So this young man... And, and his wife uh, faithfully then served, and family, I guess, over time, faithfully served um, in the church. It's, it's powerful. It's a sad loss. It's a big deal when you lose such a, a spiritual giant on this earth, especially when we sit there and we wonder, you know, what's happening to this world? 
and then you lose this major uh, this major anchor, this major um, leader. He's been a leader in the church for more than 70 years, uh, 54 as an apostle of the church, and um, really has uh, made his life about serving the individual, going after and rescuing the one by one by one by one by one. And it's amazing. He would speak uh, at the pulpit, and over time, he would very rarely repeat a story, and every story would be another story of him being prompted to go find somebody that needed help. And he Great did Great storyteller. Amazing he story had a really He really had a way of inspiring people to action. Also, wasn't he a Navy man? Uh, was he was in, in the, the Navy. Naval Reserves, I believe. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Powerful stuff. Uh, will be deeply missed. And Russell Nelson um, is now said to be next in line to take his seat. Interesting little fact about Russell Nelson, 93 years old, heart surgeon, and um, who... In the middle of his career, this incredibly world well-known uh, uh, heart surgeon gives up his entire practice, his entire teaching, and just goes to go become an apostle for the church. Yeah. Amazing. By the way, uh, I, I don't think Naval Reserve is a thing. It's Navy Reserve. Yeah. Yeah, the Naval Reserve is actually a different thing. My Naval is on reserve. Yeah. Well, yeah. You need it. Yeah, yeah. No one's going near that. Um, interesting, interesting stuff. So, sad uh, news for the LDS faithful um, again, but also because we understand where he's gone to, it's it's kind of nice. He's home with his wife now, up in heaven, loving life, which he dearly missed her. So, um, a, a wonderful um, blessing, I guess, for all of us in a way to have known President Monson and had him in our. In our life, let's get now to the rest of the headlines. Not so uplifting necessarily, not so spiritual, but Terry will do the best he can. What else should we be paying attention to, Terry? The uh, Senate returned to work today. The House is out for oh, a little while longer because they need more time to recoup from all their hard work. Uh, the government—they're uh, going to face a threat of a government shutdown only after managing to pass the stopgap funding bill in December. If you remember that, they kicked the can to mid-January. Yeah. We'll face just, that here that's just week. the can you keep kicking. The president wants a two-year budget deal that provides realistic budget caps and provides certainty for our nation, national security. White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders said Tuesday, that'll be the focus, front and center for all conversations that are taking place this week. While immigration will undoubtedly be one of the biggest hurdles towards passing a bipartisan funding package, Trump has insisted there be no uh, deferred action for childhood arrivals deal without a border wall, terms the Democrats have already rejected. Additional showdowns are expected over health care, national security, and other issues. Democrats have already insisted on a deal that matches Pentagon spending in domestic programs, and congressional leaders from both sides will meet Wednesday uh, with White House officials in an attempt to reach some sort of consensus. That should be, I don't know. They've had these meetings, and they don't end well. And then everyone yeah. walks out on the driveway for their moment in front of the camera and talks about how the other people are horrible. <laughs> so just a little prediction for the Sounds afternoon. like our Christmas, you know, yeah. adventure. Senator Orrin Hatch of Utah announced Tuesday he will not seek re-election. Uh, clearing the way for the speculation is that Mitt Romney will likely run for his seat. Mitt Romney changed his status on Twitter, his where his location is from Massachusetts to Holiday, Utah. Yeah. Further fueling the rumors. Well, and... Yeah, which you know, it, it's it is what it is. But the reality is, he's going to run. Yeah, and he's going to win handily. I want to see who runs against him. 
Well, already a Democrat, uh, well, yeah, Ted Wilson's daughter yeah, is running yeah. against him. Good and luck. She, uh, good, yeah. But the thing Cannon is, fodder. I think even Democrats would like Mitt to go in there if Mitt's going to go take yeah. on Trump. If somebody's got to take on Trump, they're thinking. Deadly cold weather grips the U.S. on Tuesday, causing the National Weather Service to issue freeze warnings and wind chill advisories from South Texas up through the East Coast. Officials opened uh, warming shelters in Alabama and Georgia mm. as temperatures fell to near zero in the south. On New Year's Day, 90% of the U.S. Fa- failed to warm above 32 degrees. Oh. Now, oh. Uh, they're expecting a winter hurricane. They're calling it a bomb cyclone to hit the East Coast here Whoa. today in the next few days. I didn't know this could happen. because It's, pre- it's called the, the bomb cyclone because its pressure is pre- predicted to fall so fast, an indicator of explosive strengthening. Scary. More ice, more Isn't snow, this what lots happened, of wind. Uh, in New Jersey when, and then it, that ended up costing Mitt Romney the election? Could have been. Could have failed what, didn't to get they have like a major storm right that was like a hurricane during the winter? Yeah. <laughs> Spotify, the online streaming site, was yeah. hit with a $1.6 billion lawsuit last week alleging the streaming music service using thousands of songs without license or compensation, according to The Hollywood Reporter. Spotify has previously claimed copyright law doesn't apply to streaming because it does not reproduce or distribute copyrighted material. What? Mm. Yeah. So they're saying we didn't do it. And they're like, yeah, you did. Who? So, Us? What? Now they got to go to court and figure that out. Oh, boy. Got to go to court. Those musicians, they keep ruining all our fun. Why don't they just let us have their music for free? Speaking of court, finally, in a bizarre lawsuit out of Indianapolis, result, revolving around life at, one of, uh, at the office and uh, body odor. As the Indy Star reports, the mess began when workers in a city's magistrate court complained about a co-worker's chronic body odor. Oh. That prompted Amber Briggs, as part of her role as lead staff, to place air fresheners around the office. Soon <laughs> others did the same, and the coworker with the body odor problem eventually complained to HR. Bridges then got fired, the ex- explanation being that she created a hostile work environment. Right? You have body odor, and everyone's putting up air fresheners well, because they, you stink. Did she just put the air fresheners around his cubicle? It doesn't say. It just says around the office. Um, Now, Bridges is suing the city, arguing that her firing violates the Americans with Disabilities Act. Yeah. So her firing breaks. It's not the co-worker with an issue. It's the person that got fired saying that her firing violates the Americans with Disabilities Act. What Hmm. was her disability? The lawsuit makes a two-part argument. The co-worker's body odor is a protected disability, and thus Bridges cannot be fired because of her association with the stinky co-worker. Uh, oh, oh, because, yeah, it's not her fault. No. She was just aiding. She was helping a coworker who had a disability the case of hinge, stinkiness. The case hinges on a part of the ADA that states persons discriminated against because they have known association or relationship with a disabled individual are also protected. Yeah. So because of that line, she goes... I was putting up the air fresheners, but you can't fire me because I'm associated with the person with the, the, with the disability. Okay. Mm. The reason for the body order is not specified, but an employment attorney did not are not connected to the case tells the Indy Star that body odor can indeed qualify as uh, as a disability under certain sure. circumstances. Sure. Attorneys for Bridges and the city declined comment, but the lawsuit says the city's conduct was outrageous and malicious and was intended to injure Bridges. And was done with reckless indifference to her protected civil rights, entitling her to an award of punitive damages. 
Wow. Good luck. If I had a stink problem, you would tell me about it, right? I would be the first to tell you. In fact, we did want to talk to you about something (laughs) after the show. I think that's how you can tell when you've reached the next level in a relationship with someone. Just a platonic relationship I'm talking about. If I – you know, if you see somebody with something in between their teeth or if their fly is down or if they've got something weird in their Uh hair. Or all three. And you can tell them about it in in front of a group of people, that's when you know that they truly care about you. That's a great point. Yeah. But – yeah. Wasn't that one of your coach's corners, by the yeah, way? Yeah, that's From a place of caring. I think we said that three weeks ago. You stink. <laughs> and but what what if what if it's not stink that they're bringing? Mm. What if they're bringing bringing the stink? Yeah. What if they're bringing something else uh-huh. like mice? Yeah. Ooh. What if they're just not tidy? What if their cubicle flows over into your cubicle? Mm. You know. What if they have cubicle? You know, creep, which is a dangerous thing. By the way, I've been watching a one it's probably my new favorite sitcom that's currently on called The Good Place. Yeah. And uh this girl is being tested to see if she deserves to be in The Good Place. No, I've been watching that too. And one of the questions was have you ever brought fish to your office and put it in the microwave? <laughs> yeah. That was a great cuz you're not getting into The Good Place, uh aka heaven. You're not getting into heaven. If you're microwaving fish at the office. That's right. By the way, when they when he goes down the litany of questions, I I had failed that test. Mm. Really? You've you've paid to see the Red Hot Chili Peppers? No, but I like them. You've taken your socks and shoes off on a commercial uh, flight? Yeah. Gross. Oh, boy. So gross. But I had to clip my nails. Well, you know, things have to happen. How, how, how's a guy supposed to clip his toenails if In he public. can't right. take his shoes and socks off? Well, you could just pull them through the hole in your sock. That's always handy. <sighs> Good stuff. Hey, uh, any other news so, for us, Terry? There's a book. Yeah. The author, Michael Wolf, author of the forthcoming book, Fire and Fury, Inside the Trump White House. Fire and Fury. The Guardian mm. uh, obtained an early copy, and they start reading along. And yeah. apparently uh, Steve Bannon, former... Yeah. Chief strategist to President Trump starts uh, going off on life inside the White House and the Trump campaign, especially regarding the infamous meeting in June 2016 between Donald Trump Jr., Jared Kushner, Paul Manafort, and a Russian lawyer who promised incriminating information about Hillary Clinton. Yeah, right? yeah that this was a, a bad time. This is for a them. key meeting that, uh-huh. that, that all the investigation about Russian collusion and all this is looking at. Um, so he goes. Uh, the quotes are like on the Russian investigation. Bannon says. They're going to crack Don Jr. like an egg on national TV. <laughs> wow. On the, Trump, on the Trump Tower meeting, it says the three senior guys in the campaign, you have Trump Jr., Kushner, and Manafort, right? Right. Three senior guys in the campaign thought it was a good idea to meet with a foreign government inside Trump Tower in the conference room on the 25th floor with no <laughs> lawyers. <laughs> they didn't have any lawyers. Even if you thought this was not treasonous or unpatriotic or bad just in general – and I happen to think all of that, you should have called the FBI immediately. This is Bannon talking, right? Really? Yeah. He's basically calling Trump Jr. Humpty Dumpty. Yeah. yeah. He's going to crack him like an egg. Treasonous and unpatriotic, that meeting. Yeah, but, uh, and then they'd say, where should they have met instead instead of Trump Tower? And he goes, at a Holiday Inn in Manchester, New Hampshire. An, anywhere else. An IHOP. <laughs> Just get off the grid. At least what are there'd you be doing? food involved. Well, why does it matter if a lawyer is there? Do they could tell you if you're treading on 
water when it comes to treason or things you're not supposed to be discussing. Or didn't you know. they have a lawyer at their Christmas party? What was that all no, about? There, there was a discussion that Trump Jr. went in to talk to the Senate, and he said he can't answer any questions because it's privilege because there was a lawyer in the room as he was talking to his dad. Oh yeah. So I maybe but, he just walks in to say, "Hey, dad," and brings a lawyer with him just to be safe. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> then it's all privilege. He goes on. He goes on. Where the Trump team should have. Uh, as he called it, dumped down information. Where should where should they have put their information to make it more useful to get out to the public? And he thinks Breitbart, something like that, a legitimate publication would have been great. Hold on, uh, yeah, like a legitimate one, like Breitbart. Yeah, said Bannon. Yeah, which is the one he. So owns. let me get this straight. Yeah, yeah, Bannon yeah. is is pro the meeting as long as you hold it anywhere but a Trump building. Pro or and he, bring, he, invite attorneys. No, no, he's not pro the meeting. He thinks the meeting was unpatriotic. Okay, good. He thinks it's treasonous, but he thinks it's kind of a dumb idea to hold it in Trump Tower. Yeah. Why wouldn't you, if you're going to do something possibly illegal, why wouldn't you just leave where your campaign headquarters are, where it's like Secret Service people yeah. are protecting your principal upstairs or one floor down from Trump? Why yeah. don't you just get out of the building? But they did it just right there. Why not? Well, what that might say is that they didn't, they didn't think it was treasonous. Well, yeah, and that's, I think he's pointing out that he doesn't think there's a lot of thinking that going on. They're probably, yeah, clueless. On whether special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation, where it's headed, Bannon says this is all about money laundering. Mueller chose senior prosecutor Andrew Wies- Wiesman first, and he is a money laundering lawyer. Their path to uh, to getting Trump goes right through Paul Manafort, Don Jr., and Jared Kushner. It's as plain as the hair on your face. This is the plan. This My is, face or Jeff's face? He's I, talking I, I to, shaved. It's I their, shaved, their okay. conversation. So he goes, their plan is to go right through Manafort, Don Jr., and Kushner, right up the chain, right up to, to yeah. the President Trump but, to see if something connects. But only Manafort would have been in for money laundering. No. What he say? Yeah. But, I mean, there's other things, too, because he goes on how they're going to get there. He goes, it goes through uh, Deutsche Bank, which is in Germany, right? Mm-hmm. He goes, and all of the Kushner stuff. The Kushner stuff is greasy. They're going to go right through that. They're going to roll those two guys up and, and say, play me or trade me. Wow. So he's saying Jared Kushner, who he doesn't like. Remember yeah, all the yeah, fighting? Yeah, they're in and enemies. Out? He's dirty. He's dirty. And they're going to no, find he's things. greasy. He's greasy. There's, he's a, that's got greasy stuff on that and one. And he says on the Trump team's chances to escape the Mueller probe because they're sitting on a beach trying to stop a Category 5 hurricane. <laughs> so, <laughs> wow. Trump now, Jr. is uh, Humpty Dumpty and Kushner is a mechanic, apparently. Uh-huh. He's greasy. Or it works the fry and, machine. And Steve Bannon might be a little disgruntled at being dismissed from his job well, before. But Steve Bannon, I mean, this is a new... This is a less kind, less gentle Bannon. He actually sounds anti-Trump right now. Well, he's pro-Trump. He's anti-everybody else that works for Trump well, in the cabinet. I know, he but if, like if, if they keep spinning these people, they're going to spin them right up to Trump. That's what he's saying. And so, and he said that they made a lot of mistakes, like having yeah. a meeting with a Russian lawyer in Trump Tower. But it's another weird thing that came out is Trump now said Mueller is going to do – it'll be a fair investigation. The outcome right. will be fair. Sure. Which – that's a totally different tone. Well, he's trying he's, to – he's playing nice. He also uh, recently said, um, which this was kind of shocking to me, he, he didn't tweet much over the holiday, yeah, which was he, kind of nice. Like right. it seemed like well, there was peace on earth. His wife turned off the Wi-Fi. Oh, is that what it was? Mm. There's also that aspect of when he's with Melania, it kind of slows down. Yeah, because she, she's like, no, 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 no. He did no. have some like off the – Cuff rec- uh, an interview with the New York Times sitting in the dining room at Mar-a-Lago. Did you find yourself being online less? No, it was nice. I just kind of stepped away. 
And it, my wife, I would always – I Santa got her a phone. She's mm. got a brand new phone. Nice. Like a nice phone. Mm. And uh, she was on it nonstop. So that gave us a lot of free time. <laughs> <laughs> it was awesome. Uh, OK. Wow. So just some ideas. From- but Trump after then uh, – yeah, he must have been on Wi-Fi because he sent all these tweets, I yeah. guess. And then the minute he got to the White House and the Wi-Fi was turned back on, beep, 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 like 16 tweets went out. Tweet storms. Yeah. And a lot of them had to do with what he was watching on, I don't know, Fox News. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. <sighs> well, good to know. So we can't have body odor. Nope. No body odor. Uh, and you, But you also, if you do have body odor, we shouldn't probably put a lot of um, nice smelling air fresheners, air fresheners yeah. and aromatherapy stuff around you. But if you if you don't think you're the one that stinks, but someone starts hanging a lot of Christmas little tree mm-hmm. uh, air fresheners around, let's say, your cubicle, it might be you. That's a great point. Just a sign. Look so for the if, air fresheners. So if you don't know, Jeff was wondering if he had a body right. odor issue and if we would tell him. No, I wasn't wondering. I said, if I did, you would tell me, right? Well, we wouldn't. We'd have we'd have. – I'm not HR. worried that I do. Well, I would just hope that if I did, you would tell me. You know there's a way to know. You just sniff. <laughs> yeah. I mean this isn't brain surgery. This is just body odor. I mean you would know. But what if you're used to it? You kind of need a second opinion. Yeah. You know, that it's a very easy fix, too. In fact, we're going to send you to our boss, Don, and that's Don's job is to smell and see if you have body odor. I just got like 20 opinions right there. Yeah, that whoever that was was all over you. Hey, straight ahead, we're going to give you some other things you can be doing to uh, make your employees more cooperative. We'll be reviewing an interview we did about how upbeat music can not only, uh, you know, lift the beat of the team, but also make employees more cooperative. That's up next on The Matt Townsend Show. Research has shown that music in retail settings can add value to the shopping experience. It can also improve the moods of customers, increase engagement, and increase the chances of a purchase. Less studied, however, is how music can affect employees at work. So we wanted to revisit an interview that we did with Kevin Niffen, who's a professor of Cornell University, to talk to us about an interesting study he has performed about music and its impact on employees. I began the interview by asking Kevin, what does music do for teams in the workplace? Right, so part of the motivation was actually uh, students in one of my classes identifying that they worked in a retail setting for a given summer that was had a certain theme tied to a musician. And when they started the summer, they enjoyed the, the music by that person. Uh, but then after maybe a few weeks, and especially by the end of the summer, uh, not so much. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so this idea that there might be a conflict or at least potentially different effects for music uh, whether it's retail or not, uh, but retail is a starting point uh, for employees compared to customers, uh, help set us on this path of figuring out uh, what influence music might have on, say, cooperation is what we focused on for for employees in a workplace. What what was it about the music that that has anything to do with cooperation? Yeah, so there's a couple aspects. So the the, the big picture main finding was that uh, we found that happy music helped effect more cooperative behavior 
than uh, unhappy music. And uh, we have two studies in the paper. It's in this Journal of Organizational Behavior. Uh, just came out. And um, the second study has a control condition. So we have happy music uh, and what we call unhappy music. And we can talk about that. Um, and then no music. And there was no difference between the unhappy music and no music. But instead, um, we tell us interpret the effect of the happy music. So the happy music um, affected uh, an increase in uh, a sustained increase or elevated level of cooperation um, in, in the study. And happy music uh, was Walking on Sunshine. What were some other uh, of the happy music hits? Yeah, so um, uh, admittedly uh, we have, you know, a sample, by definition, a sample of music, uh, both for happy and unhappy. And, and so one of the things we say in the paper is really we're scratching the surface of the relevance of music in the workplace for employees. And um, so lots more could be done with, uh, you know, finer grain distinctions of types of music. But for us, we had happy music that included, like you said, the songs you mentioned. Um, we also put in Brown Eyed Girl and the theme song to the TV show Happy Days. Um, and then Unhappy Music, we had a couple of songs on a loop as well that were uh, part of a genre that I had never heard of before uh, going into this that this that, that research uh, called Screamo Music. Oh, wow. It sounds so, very unhappy. Yeah, it's funny. <laughs> uh, I mean, I ran these studies, and so after I listened to the music maybe 20 times uh, or more, uh, I could start to hear a melody to it, but... Um, but most people would not hear any melody or anything good about it. So we, we did have people, um, most people, I mean, they have fans of their own, but um, we did have independent raters for the happy and unhappy music, and we asked them to assess the music in and of itself, and they, you know, affirmed that, that our one sample of music was happy, the other wasn't, and also that the happy music had a rhythm to it. And the unhappy music was arrhythmic, hmm. and so that's one of the one of the distinctions we really highlight in the paper. This not just happy and unhappy, but rhythmic and arrhythmic. Uh, and, and this doesn't the music doesn't just make people happy, but it it makes them cooperative is what you've been able to to validate. It actually right. increases cooperation. How did you come to that conclusion? So we have two uh, nice little figure in this paper uh, where we. Uh, Tease apart the, the influence of mood. So happy music puts people in a better mood, and if people are in a better mood, they're more likely to cooperate. So um, so that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, we, we, we also, though, have uh, a finding in, uh, from the study that shows that happy music, and again, happy by definition, uh, in our case, is rhythmic music. So happy slash rhythmic music has, a, has an effect independent of mood. So it's not just that people get a better mood and then they're more cooperative, uh, but that there's something independent about it. That, uh, and so we, we go in the paper describing uh, and talking through this idea that, that the rhythm, that uh, the beat of the rhythm, you know, people just sort of synchronize uh, um, not just, you know, maybe their foot tapping to the beat of the music, but also appear to synchronize uh, their behavior, in this case as part of an economic decision-making uh, game. We had 20 rounds of a game. Um, uh, a public goods game, it's called, but that people people became more in sync with each other uh, with this music that has had a sync or a rhythm to it. So, hmm. um, so those are the two explanations that we talked through. That there's that that mood plays a role, and that there's also just this independent role that has to do with something arguably more primitive 
um, about getting in sync with the music and getting in sync with the people nearby you at the same time. Isn't it? But if you've ever, um, where was it that I've seen it? Like, it, like because I do a lot of speaking and um, a lot of times they'll do these like pump up songs. So right before you go on, they'll try to get the crowd in there. They'll put some music on. And you do – there is an energy that the music creates that does make my job easier as a speaker. I mean I've kind of known yeah. that forever. This is just validating it. There's something about – and you, yeah, you said it's primitive in a way. But there is something just about getting getting in sync. Yeah, that's a great anecdote. Uh, and I play music sometimes before some of my classes. And I can't say until you just shared your story. Uh, that I maybe I'm unintentionally uh, been helping uh, yeah. find the pump uh, of my room, but um, yeah, in the field of exercise science, there's um, uh, a researcher at this place called Brunel, which has um, he's uh, pinned the tail on uh, beats per minute as being very important for exercise uh, research, at least. And the sweet spot is uh, 120 to 140 beats per minute. Really, uh, in terms of um, enhancing performance of in, in athletics or yeah. or making people perceive less exertion. Um, and so so that's another of the kinds of dimensions that, you know, the, the research we've done could explore. Um, um, and there's there's websites online where you can, it's just for fun, you can type in the name of songs you're interested in and uh, people have uh, set it up so without any fee you can just figure out the beats per minute. So, oh, that's, uh, so, so they, yeah, you can get in rhythm and... And, uh, you know, this isn't new. I mean, I just remember, do you remember when the Bulls kept taking the championship? Let's get ready to rumble or whatever song they'd play at the beginning of their, uh, oh, no, no, they had a different song. And they'd play it at the beginning of their um, of their introductions, and it would just jazz everyone up. It would get so everybody so charged up. I mean, this is, but this is the first time, I guess, we're bringing this discovery into the OD world, right? Organizational development. So that, that's that's the point we make in the paper that uh, music is one of these taken for granted aspects of the environment that um, that people haven't paid that pe- people in marketing have paid a ton of attention to in relation to customers, but in terms of uh, influence on employees in the workplace, that's uh, been uh, been basically uh, ignored. Uh, like if we we did a search of organizational behavior textbooks and uh, looked up um, where music appears and. Um, some of the top journals in, in the field, and usually it'll come up only in the context of, say, studying the music industry as opposed to studying the influence of, of music. So it's fun. I, I like to ask students if you, uh, you know, where do you hear music or how, much, how many minutes or hours of the day do you, do you have music as part of your environment? And, um, and then I usually tell them, well, uh, I expect that if they paid more attention to, um, to their environment, it's probably higher. They're probably underestimating it. Hmm. Supermarkets are a fun uh, case I like to point to. I mean, um, like the next time you go into a supermarket, try to like take some care to see if if they might be playing music because it's there's just a lot of places where music is played and we uh, we're not always consciously uh, attentive to it. Yeah, you don't even know it's happening. In, in your research, I guess your somebody's style or like of music doesn't necessarily matter in this because the, you saw more cooperation coming out of a certain style of music. Yeah, there's a couple. I mean, uh, some of the pitfalls with this is uh, we acknowledge this in the paper and future research will need to look at it, but music can certainly uh, cause some trouble in the workplace. And uh, 
hasn't been explored too much, except uh, qualitatively, some people have noted surgeons. Right? Uh, people yeah. hear these stories of surgeons listening to music. So it's kind of easy to imagine uh, who's all working in the surgery theater uh, at the same time. It's not just the surgeon. It's also, say, the anesthesiologist, nursing uh, staff. Uh, and they might not all share the same taste. Right. So, um, so there is something, there are, there is care to be taken in, with respect to, um, to the relevance uh, or playing music in a, in a given workplace. And that's one of the, one of the areas of care, certainly. Where do you see this goes in the future? How, how can, um, I mean, I guess it's one thing to play music all day, but it's another thing just, using music at at better times you know in our in our meetings better or whatever H- how could we incorporate this into our workplace better yeah so uh, it's interesting to realize so our focus on and our finding related to cooperation but uh cooperation isn't the the goal or the endpoint uh for a lot of us for most of our day or right. for most of our work day you know uh, for some people it is and if you play it out right um in workplaces where cooperation is, is going to be rewarded and prized and valued and beneficial for everybody uh, throughout the course of the day. Um, those are probably the workplaces where music is played um, a lot and maybe even all day. Uh, and I'm thinking, say, of the, uh, of the auto garage or, mm. um, you know, uh, workplace settings like that. Now, uh, so, so with that as background, right, uh, yeah, the research has uh, the research is focused on cooperation. It's not focused say on productivity or creativity, mm-hmm. um, and so so we we would expect that that the finding is specific to cooperation, and that um, and there's actually uh, I've learned after this article came out that uh, there are people who have been selling mainly on the basis of intuition, not science, but nonetheless, uh, people some companies have been purchasing their services. Um, Coming up with a playlist that might that, that they have arguments why it would increase or enhance productivity versus say uh, cooperation huh. is our focus. Yeah, well, because I, I could see it, and you brought up an example in your article. Um, for example, when you're doing a workshop, or a, when you turn and you ask your people to to turn and do a brainstorm and work together on a project in a, like a class, it'd be a great time to put on happy music. Yeah, I've had students actually after they read the article uh, test out the the findings on themselves with their when they have a, a work team setting like a a work team meeting preparing say a class presentation and um, and without fail and I don't think they're just telling it to me because they know what I've the work I've done on it uh, without fail they uh, they report back that that their work that their group was uh, more, more productive as a group because of, they were being cooperative. Um, and people maybe share more, uh, get more ideas. Hmm. So, um, so I think it does, yeah, has some immediate takeaways in L- regards to that. Let me ask you this, and this might seem weird, um, but I'm kind of biased because I do I, – I help couples learn to communicate and work together on problems. And um, is the test more on the interpersonal level? Is it between two people or is it between groups? Cooperation yes, in a, groups or, or dyads? Question. So in our case, the experiment uh, had people working in groups of three, and um, and as a, and the groups of three did not know who they were. They knew so it was they were stable groups of three, so they knew the decisions that uh, each other were taking from one round to the next, and it was 20 rounds of a, of an experiment. Hmm. 
and they knew the other person was in the room, but the room had roughly 24 people in it. So we'd have eight groups of three, and they wouldn't know each other. Reason being is that um, these kinds of studies, if people know each other and have a chance to even chit-chat just for a small amount, then their cooperation just goes off the roof uh, um, because cheap talk or small talk has a lot of has a lot of value. Yeah, bonding. So, yeah. Um, so we have those controls built in. So, so but to answer your question, uh, groups of three. But I like your uh, juxtaposition with uh, with couples. I think that's a fair and sensible. But it might be uh, powerful, right? So now the next time you have to go talk about a difficult topic, money in your marriage, sex in the marriage, maybe put on some happy music and see if it changes anything. See if it puts you in rhythm together. Yeah, I mean the music that we had playing in the in the as part of the experiment wasn't particularly loud. Yeah. It was uh and so uh and and look at retail settings, right? They're not mm-hmm. I mean some places music is loud, but oftentimes say the supermarket example it's not. Right. So um, so I think, uh, yeah, like I said, I, it's a good, uh, I, yeah, I like your takeaway on that. And two, I guess just around our families, if you want, you know, if today's, if it's Sunday or Saturday, I mean, the day we're going to clean up, you know, and get ready and, and take care of our yard and stuff, maybe put on some happy music and, and, and just see the effects of it. I think, like you said, a lot of this might just be intuitive to us anyway. Yeah. Uh, uh social glue is a fun phrase to think about. Uh, in relation to this and say other uh, other other types of these taken for granted aspects of social life in the workplace and out uh, like eating together so so I would uh, I would put you know say happy music in the background mm. or eating together as um, um, as types of social glue mm-hmm. that um, you know they help sort of lubricate the, the ties that people have um, uh, in ways that that are really simple and cheap, right? I mean, that's one of the things we highlight in this paper about music, that uh, a lot of workplaces spend a lot of of time, like weekend time, which pinches on people's, uh, you know, family commitments. Yeah. Uh, A lot of of time on uh, off-site retreats. And so here's something simple, just play music, very inexpensive and non-disruptive, and uh, and seems to get a lot of thanks buck. Man, I'm telling you, I think it works, and... Cheap is good, right? And cohesiveness is great. Man, just driving in your car with your kids on a long trip. We need cooperation. Keep it happy music. Don't just play, yeah, don't just play some tragic, you know, opera. That might set everyone off. Good work. Thank you, Kevin Niffen. Appreciate your great research there. And uh, keep up the great work. You can find more on Twitter at kevinniffen.com. Niffen has a K in it, K-N-I-F-F-I-N. Look him up. He's doing some great stuff and a lot of fun stuff to learn about in the future. At Kevin Niffen. We'll take a break, my friends. Come back. Visit our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Woo! Welcome back. Man, that that trailer of uh, Cerdos en un avión. That looks like a scary movie. Pigs really can fly, folks. Hey, up next, uh, it's time to go visit our good buddies and brethren at BYU Sports Nation and find out what will be coming up on their show at the top of the hour. Spencer and Jerem, hello, gentlemen. Hi, Matt. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you both. How are you? Um, good, but first and foremost, shouldn't it be hogs on a plane instead of pigs on a plane? I don't know. Should it be? Well, it sounds more fierce if it's 
or Razorbacks on a plane. What is the translation, amigo? Yeah, I don't know. We don't know. But it seems like cerdos is that is that what it is? Yeah, but if idea. but if you if you've ever had a pig mad at you, you oh, it's the worst. It's the worst. Now, if it's a Razorback, then yes. That well, sounds so much better than pigs on a plane. Razorbacks on a plane. Well, have you ever had pigs in a blanket? Yes, delicious. Delish. Mm, and delicious. good for you. Delicious. And that's and a good, good it's, it's a really a good point. We need wow. to go, we probably ought to have Jeff maybe retape that and maybe call it Razorbacks or hogs. Boars. Boars <laughs> on a plane. Boars on a plane. Spores on a plane. Yeah. Spores is different. That's a whole other problem. Yeah. Hey, uh, what do you guys think um, of the, the playoffs uh, for college football? Playoffs? It seems to be going well. Rose Bowl was epic. Right? That was epic. And then there was the Sugar Bowl. And I didn't watch much of that. Was it a sleeper? It was a sleeper. I actually didn't think that the Sugar Bowl was really that boring, but juxtaposed to the Rose Bowl. Unbelievable. Like, any game's boring compared to what the Rose Bowl was. Yeah. Good grief. I, I still do this. I cannot believe Oklahoma didn't win that. Because they it's came like out looking so good. It's like they had... They coached you know, a little bit scared down the stretch. took that boomer shooter wagon out there. They claimed their land yeah. like Tom Cruise in Far and Away, and they just <laughs> sat there. I was wondering when you were going to get that Tom Cruise Far and Away uh, bit in there. You're welcome. Did you see the headline of the fake newspaper after the game? No Later, what? Sooners. <laughs> you, can always, you can always, yeah, you can always break the tension of like an awkward group setting. Yeah, just laughing by going. Ha! Yeah, it slays every time. No, it totally. I, I can see how that would work in your group, friend group because it's just so dumb. It, and it, but here's the question: Are we if University of Central Florida is still undefeated? National champs. <laughs> Should they? <laughs> you know what? BYU comes into this conversation. Totally. So when BYU won its national title, it won it at the perfect time. There have been other non-Power 5 teams who have gone undefeated who have not been national champions. Mm. BYU did it at the right yeah. time. Got to get it BYU done early. BYU has that schedule in 2017. They're ranked equal to or lower, in a bad way, than UCF this year. BYU beat four teams that had winning records in 1984. Huh. UCF beat seven, including including Auburn, the only team to beat Alabama. Right. UCF is really good. If there were an 18 playoff, it would be really fun to see what they could do. We will not see what they can do, and that is actually more intriguing because the legend will be greater than the reality. Uh, 04 but... Utah, 08 Utah, a couple of Boise State teams. Those teams went undefeated. Had significant wins and significant bowls to end the season, but they did it in the wrong time. BYU got it done in the right time. See, this is why we need a time machine. Because BYU won the national championship, they made changes in college football so that it would never happen again. Yeah. And then in 96, BYU probably should have been in the mix. 01, BYU probably should have been in the mix before Luke Staley's injury. BYU was at the forefront of this non-Power 5, pushing the envelope, challenging the status quo of the power conferences. Then other teams came in and have carried the banner, Utah, Boise State, uh, obviously. The uh, other ones. You know, UCF, the other ones. And, and here, uh, you know, BYU sits hoping to get back to that level at some point. Mm. It's a big deal. But, but then again, you look at the Rose Bowl game and you're thinking, well, yeah, th- I think they hit that pretty well. 
Yeah, those those, those two were pretty paired. Yeah, all, all four teams in the playoffs deserve to be there. It would have been interesting to see Ohio State in the mix. Who I, I but, who, but, but, ex, like an expanded playoff. There are very few. Uh, we Spencer and I agree that an expanded playoff would be dope. Yeah, six or eight teams, please. Oh, that'd be cool. So is it just and time? all we sacrifice is a couple of teams' academics? Yeah, who cares? That's the that's it. That's the cost. Yeah. Not everybody's academics. A but, couple of teams. That's right. And those those you know those schools will take care of that. And they take it very seriously. Academics or every single student athlete at those schools. Yeah. No. Absolutely. <laughs> it's always you two that would I worry can't say about that with the, a straight face. You worry about the kids' academics. That's that's why and we love BYU listen, sports. The NCAA Nation. cares a lot about the academics. That's why they have baseball teams go out on the road for about half of that winter. Yeah, sure. Spring semester. But they, I'm sure they, they send tutors. I mean, you can FaceTime to a tutor. I mean, it's it's not like they that. Care can't so happen. much that they're like, yes, go play fifty games between February <laughs> and June. Oh boy, something's got to change here. Hey, what's going to be on your show today? You're still doing it, right? Uh, of course, we are. Today is not the day that we don't. Okay, good. Yeah, we. One of these days, we're going to do a live hit and be like, we're at not. We're not doing, doing the show. show. We just can't we won't do tell you. Like, there will be like a recorded edition of the show <laughs> or something, so but we won't we tell you. We could have done it yesterday, but you were. I think you're right. I know I wasn't here. Uh, it's a new year, obviously, Matt. Yes. New BYU basketball resolutions, but the goal ultimately remains the same, and that is win a championship. And after the St. Mary's game, how much closer is BYU to obtaining that goal, or are Ooh. they at all? Like, where where is BYU in this timeline? Uh, when you look at what they ultimately want to do, win a championship after the St. Mary's game. Uh, the reservations are back for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they seem to have a really good preseason. Yeah, that's the question. How much progress has BYU made? And what do they need to do to further kind of their goals for this year? Because their goal is to win the West Coast Conference Championship. Uh, Losing St. Mary's at home certainly does not help that. No. What now? What now for the Cougs? Great question. What else? BYU has improved, but how much? We'll discuss. You Greg guys, Rubel will join us. Who Greg Rubel will be there. L- little uh, big deal, no deal. Oh, I mm-hmm. love that game. BYU football is going to open up the 2018 season against a brand new head coach. Yeah. <gasps> Wait, what? Huh? That's exciting. We were not anticipating this. See, the, this this did come out of left field. So there's a win. Well, it seems like BYU does this a yeah. <laughs> BYU does this yeah. a lot. We'll see. <laughs> it's it's a huge advantage. This is exciting. Huge. Huge. Well, guys, it sounds like another home run show, of course. And uh, what else should we expect from these two gentlemen? Two of the best in town, two of the best in the world. Let's just say that. And we like to call them ours. They're our BYU Sports Nation. And cute as a button. Both of them. That's up next, folks. Uh, just about five minutes away, you'll be able to enjoy that show um, and uh, and those headlines. Again, by the way, great insight into the into the UCF football deal. I mean, a lot of us don't think about what they're going through, but it is parallel to what BYU has to struggle with, trying to be looked at by all these big five conferences. Um, Okay. As you know, we always like to do a little hero story. So we're going to get to it right now. Uh, Our hero today is an attorney 
who saves two boys who fell through the ice. A Pennsylvania attorney saved the two boys who fell through the ice of a pond on Thursday. Attorney Gregory Fellerman was on the telephone looking out his office window park uh, at his at his office just after 12 Thursday when he noticed two boys on the ice that formed on the pond near his office. One of the boys went through the ice up to his chin, according to the report. The other boy crawled out to help, but also went through the ice as well. Fellerman ended his call, ran out of the office to help. He brought them both back to his office where they were evaluated by EMS and left with their grandmother. Talking about scary, we were told at an early age to stay off the ice, Fellerman told the local newspaper. I couldn't believe that I was seeing what it what had happened, but I just knew I had to help and make sure that they were both okay. So he did. He stepped up and uh, took care of them. He's the hero of the day on the Matt Townsend Show. And that is uh, that is the show. I'm going to add one more hero uh, as we wrap up the show, another hero that probably is, uh, I think, even a bigger hero is President Thomas S. Monson, who was the 16th leader of the LDS Church, who passed away last night, surrounded by his family and loved ones. He is a hero for 15 million plus members of the church and um, just an incredible man, an incredible role model and a person who decided uh, at a very early age that there's so much joy in just following your God and doing what uh, what matters most by serving those that are in need. And so he's the hero of the day as well on the Matt Townsend Show. And uh, our condolences go out to his family and to the church overall. Uh, powerful, powerful man. But by the way, now at a beautiful place with his, with his wife who uh, died before he did. That's the show, my friends. And we'll be back again tomorrow. More ideas, more information to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier lives. This is the Matt Townsend Show. 